I don't know. Do you like Tool or Primus music-wise? Where are you with that? I don't even know what we're talking about. There you go. <laughs> Not a fan. Tool so is I, that is Tool. Tool is a band, right? Tool is a band. Okay, yeah. What kind I of music Tool. do you like? I listen to pretty much anything. Tool is is like heavy metal, right? Yeah, but it's like artsy heavy metal. Like artsy heavy metal. On today's episode, run through the Sacramento Kings up 2-0 on the Warriors. What it means for a very early part of the playoffs. So maybe don't listen to that part. We have Jason Kelsey, who's had an incredible career. And we're just going to hang out with him, man, and talk football, talk Eagles. A lot of Eagles in there. And then David Grant, who wrote a book called The Wager. It is out today. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Some history there. Cape Horn, sign me up. Cape Horn, that's all I need to hear. I'm in. And then life advice. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Buy Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose Buy. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Buy and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. Not really Tales from the Couch, but I also will admit I feel kind of dumb with only two series being at Game 2 and the other one's only one game in. Uh, I try to remind myself and everyone else every single playoff year, sometimes Game 1 is the most misleading of all the games, and we start going like, all right. Uh, but Watching Sacramento do this two games in a row, uh, there is a problem in Golden State. Okay, so there's a bunch that I want to get to here, but the challenge for Sacramento coming into this was really two things, right? It was the inexperience of this group, which is not something you no one ever goes like, you know what I really like? I like this team that's never had to play in these games before. Uh, and then also the defensive numbers. But we knew when we looked at kind of the playoff landscape, it felt like it was more open than ever before. And I know there's also times where people are like, oh, you guys say that. No, I don't think we do. I think it's like usually three teams. And you're like, okay. And now there's always going to be one major injury, usually a second one that kind of alters history here. And then we forget about that injury. We've been over that stuff in the past because you can play that game with literally every single champion, uh, even if a lot of the years the NBA champion we got felt like the right team and felt like the right player. But when you look at the Lakers, I think, you know, that's a series where you go, is this really happening? Is this going to happen? And I had those moments. I don't know that it's good for a podcast. Maybe if I was doing a daily radio show, and that's why we end up all contradicting ourselves. It's like, I got three hours today, and the Lakers looked awesome in game one. And if they're playing Sacramento, and if Phoenix can't figure things out, and, you know, even though Denver looked incredible, and slightly different challenge there for uh, Minnesota going up against Jokic as opposed to Jalen Williams and Dario Saric. You can start playing that game where you start projecting all that stuff. And that's where you start making mistakes and get a little bit dangerous. But going into it, as I'd said, it felt wide open. And there's one specific number that tells us historically it was more wide open because of the lack of dominance at the top. Now, the lack of dominance also can be that this is just a different sport in the regular season. It just is the lack of priority. It doesn't seem like anybody cares about home court anymore the way they used to uh, back in the day. But Boston was the number one team in the NBA this year in point differential at plus 6.5. That's a really low number. And if you go back historically, it's the lowest point differential leader in an NBA season since 86-87. 
also the Celtics. So I thought that that was a telling thing. You know, different times, whether it's the Lakers putting together the run at the end of the regular season. I remember during that Knicks peak, Bill and I were, they beat the Celtics in that overtime game, quickly went off, and we're starting to go like, are the Knicks actually a contender here? And as we're talking it out, I'm going, you know, this is going to sound like it's negative, but it's also true. If Brunson and Randall are your NBA champs, like where does that rank on NBA champ duos? And Brunson's everything, man. He is, he is all that. He is beyond. But it'd still be the worst duo of any recent champ I can remember, unless you're going to go with Dirk and then whoever the second guy is on the Mavs. But Dirk standing in the game at the time when he won in 2011 and beat LeBron, like it's beyond what Brunson and Jalen uh, Julius Randle are, right? So, you know, Philly is a team where when you start playing like the what's possible game here, it's like, man, are they really going to take out one of those top two teams in the East? Well, let's see what Giannis looks like. Uh, I imagine we're probably like a week away from a Rob Williams injury again, which completely changes who the Celtics are. Just an aside on the first game last night, I did not like what I saw from Philadelphia. I know they won. I know they're clearly the better team. But they're beating a six seed in Brooklyn, who's really a 13 and 15 team with this group. It depends on which day you want to start counting the standings. But they're a below 500 team, this group. Uh, they should be beating them. They'll probably take a game off and give one away. Maybe they sweep. Who knows? They're the superior team. But what I didn't like is that it's an NBA team where there is some continuity here. They know what's going to happen. It's the second game. They're double teaming Embiid like crazy. And they're doubling Embiid because they position him so far away from the basket, which is both good and bad at times. It's good because you should be able to operate from the double team. And as you're watching it very early in that game, I'm like, this should be a huge maxi game. Because this should be easy for them. I mean, sometimes they were triple teaming Embiid because the Nets were screwing up the rotations or the guy coming over to double wasn't paying attention to somebody else already being there. And you're like, man, all you guys have to do is move and cut and Embiid so far away, which in this case can be good against this double team. Just move off of it and this should be easy. But at the same time, like as that game played out in the first half, you're like, Brooklyn should be up more. And they actually shot it really poorly. They were below 40% for the game. But I'm only being harsh about Philly because I'm looking at them as, well, what's your goal? Your goal is to get out of the East and then see what happens. And you shouldn't be afraid of anybody in the West. So when I'm looking at any of the teams going, can this actually be a championship team? Uh, it's the same thing back with the Knicks, where you're going like, all right, this is really good. But is it going to be that good? That would be weird. By the way, Harden, the refs are not having it. Zero free throw attempts in the first two games of this playoff series. They're just not. They don't give a shit anymore. They're like, cool dribble and fall into a guy forward on the drives he's just he's just not getting those free throw attempts all right so back to what we're talking about at least a bit with last night so whether it's the lakers philly going is this possible phoenix maybe getting more of the benefit of the doubt than they should because we know who they are individually Sacramento, the Knox, which I brought up plenty of times, they were 24th on defense, and post-All-Star break, they were 24th as well. Golden State, after the All-Star break, you know, you want to go, wait a minute, they were terrible on the road, their defense was terrible on the road, like this, all of you guys that took them seriously, there were all these signs, you shouldn't have taken them seriously, and maybe that's all true, but Golden State was actually 7th on defense after going 15-9. and nine. So this is more of a credit to Sacramento here a couple games into this. I don't think it's, oh, Golden State sucked and their defense sucked 
and Sacramento's beating just a completely like a, they were marketed a certain way coming into this series. No, I actually just think Sacramento's playing that well, which is like the best version of events here for the Kings because Golden State actually was a pretty good basketball team. And you add Wiggins back to it, you're going, no, no, this is this is real. This is really, it's not because Golden State's so flawed. I think it's because Sacramento's this good. To the continuity point, we had mentioned, I know, throughout the season about possessions. The Fox, Kavon, Barnes, Keegan Murray, Sabonis lineup played just under 1,900 possessions together. That's 329 more possessions than the number two most played lineup in the NBA this season. That's the uh, awesome Atlanta Hawks group. All right. Their defense, two games in, and I hesitate to even do this because you start looking at some of the advanced stuff being like, man, their pace is this. You're like, it's two games. What the fuck are you talking about, right? But I think it's important when you frame it with who Sacramento has been on defense in the regular season and then go, okay, they're allowing 109.6 points per 100 possessions in these two games against Golden State. Again, it's Golden State here, and that number's eight points better than who Sacramento was after the post, you know, the post All Star break, there, those last twenty plus games, um, there's no stopping Curry, right? You're not ever going to stop Curry. Curry's had some pretty good games here, back to back games, I think. But the extended pressure against Curry is screwing them up, and for whatever reason, Golden State's going into this with a with an arrogance of getting into their offense that doesn't really make any sense to me. The way. Sacramento got out in the second half and just extended some of that pressure, which slows you down to getting into your offense. It probably means like one less action because Golden State's going to keep running and running and running. And if you're not getting settled until like 14 seconds left in the shot clock, that screws you up. And Sacramento's doing an awesome job with it. And it feels like Golden State's just kind of going two games in, like maybe we'll tighten it up in game three. The thing for Golden State, as much as I still think they're a good team, they're not good enough to be this arrogant anymore. They always turned the ball over during their championship runs. They were always careless with it. Curry, who I love, has, has a couple passes every game. You're like, what are you doing? But it never mattered because they overpowered everybody. Everybody was in their peak point of their career offensively. They had a little bit more depth. And they always, and they always were an awesome defensive team, except for maybe the last stretch, right? The peak, peak Golden State years, that was one of the best defensive teams in the NBA almost every single year. There's a funny story, which I guess I'll tell. But when I watch De'Aaron Fox take over these games and have moments where, and it's, it's awesome that it's not from three, where he's just like, all right, get your head down and make something happen. Now, granted, he had another huge three last night, but it's the drives. It's the relentless drives. It's him getting any kind of edge and that, despite his offensive prowess and the clutch numbers this year. It's also funny, too, when you think about how an NBA star, the perception value of them can change dramatically in just 12 months. Like Fox missed a bunch of shots last year. It looked really frustrating. It looked like he was frustrated. And then you start wondering, like, is he just going to be one of these big stats, bad team guys that doesn't really mean anything? And yet I don't know that the rest of us nationally have caught up to realizing, do you know how special this dude is? Again, here's a story. I was on vacation I'm not going to say where I uh, was with a girl and usually like anything towards like day four or five, I was like, all right, I just want to get home. But I also knew I had like an extra day because we weren't flying out together. We had like an extra day and I was like, that's going to be some awesome Philbrick, Rosillo time, beach, solo, perfect little bonus vacation day. Anyway, her flight got changed probably 
not canceled. And there was a moment she was like, fix us. I was like, man, I really just want to go back to the beach or go home now. I wasn't into it. But Sacramento, their teammates can look at De'Aaron Fox and say, fix us. And he'll want to. And he can. And he is one of those guys, once everything breaks down, it's a very short list of players who, in the playoffs, go get us something and get it all on your own. And that's what he's been able to do. So whether it's the continuity part of it, you know, I also think they deserve credit for the Barnes transaction in not trading him. Last year before the deadline, the price was really high. They were pushing to get into the play-in game. I think there was frustration around the league being like, what the fuck is Sacramento doing? Like, who do they think they are keeping a guy that's decent at a good number? And now, granted, they have a decision to make on him. But Barnes just, he does just enough. He's still only 30 years old. He can play defense. He can hit a shot. He's played in huge games. And it's kind of funny that looking back on it, we always look at the bad teams and we're frustrated they won't move a player to be an asset somewhere else. And look, whether it's fans, teams were doing it too. And now it's like, you know what? We don't like what we're being offered. He's a good player. He's not the best. And we'll just keep him. But that's added to this continuity that they've had. Whenever you're young and you lose, you only lose because you were young. And when you're old and you lose, you only lose because you're old, right? That's, those are the rules. That's the only way we're allowed to do this. So I'm not telling you, hey, we should all start to really like young teams in the playoffs. There was another part of it where I felt like with Sacramento's three seed, is that just because of them or is it because of all the weird things that have happened around them, whether it's Phoenix, whether it's the Clippers, whether it's the Lakers, the Memphis stuff with Ja. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we, we have a moment in the NBA where, like, looking back a couple years, remember when the Nets had that group? And I'm like, wait, this group hasn't really played that much together, and now we're just supposed to buy in that it's all going to work? And they got hurt again, and that had more to do with it than the lack of continuity. Going back to 2019, when Kawhi played 60 games for Toronto, I remember because it still felt kind of new. I was like, so he's just going to kind of play when he wants to, and then they're going to turn it on, they're going to be fine. Yep, it's going to work. I don't know that that's a goal, but we're seeing it not play out well, look, it's one game in for Phoenix. Let's see what happens. But they just looked like they were confused. And maybe there's even a part of it where you could talk about Durant's run where they went 8-0 the regular season with him. But they beat Charlotte. They beat Chicago, Dallas, Minnesota, Denver twice without Jokic, San Antonio, and Oklahoma City. So were we tricked a little bit there? So as I mentioned, Phoenix and some of the other teams that are trying to like figure this out as they get into the playoffs... Maybe all the respect should be there for Sacramento because it's like, no, we are young, right? Nobody ever, nobody ever loses in the playoffs. They're like, you know what? They were too medium. Their age, yeah. Not too young, too old. They were just too medium. Maybe the point, the lesson, at least two games in here, because who knows what's going to happen when Golden State goes up there, goes back home, was that they can be young, but they actually know who they are much more than a lot of the other teams in the playoffs. I want to talk about Draymond Green as I close this out here. Uh, the free throw situation where Sacramento was in the bonus, what, a minute and a half into the third quarter, I thought they were fouling Sacramento. Pretty simple. Uh, Draymond, you could see it was just getting really frustrating for him. He had an awful stretch there in the third quarter where he had a bad pass to Wiggins on a cut. Uh, then he actually hit the ball away from Curry, which led to a turnover. Then he almost did it again. Watch for this in game three. I don't know why Golden State is so confused with just getting the ball in. They had another awful turnover on a Peyton inbounds last night, too, where it's like, what, 
where's, where's your head with this? So fast forward, or maybe we go back. By the way, at the end of game one, there was an altercation in the baseline where basically Sabonis and Green were just wrestling each other as the play was down at the other end. Clearly, they were both like trying to hold each other up, trying to figure out who was more valuable at that end of the, the court. But at 91-87, Golden State still had a chance. And even after the Draymond shit happened, they got it to a point. 703s left. Uh, Draymond, I don't think, was playing well. He'd gotten a charge in Sabonis. There was also another play in the baseline, which Kirkland, the official, called on Draymond, where they were getting back to the other end of the court, and he stuck his ass out and knocked Sabonis down, who can also flop too. They called the foul. They overturned it, which I was actually surprised by because it was pretty clear like that was a very seasoned Draymond Green official move there. It was like, I know what you were doing. So then they overturn it. So all this history is going on. Shot goes up. Sabonis is on the ground. He did grab Draymond Green's leg. And then Draymond Green tried to like resuscitate Sabonis with chest compressions, even though he was still alive with his foot. It was excessive. It was stupid. He deserved to get thrown out. But then he went on and did his wrestling shit where he started yelling at guys behind the bench, straight up just calling dudes a pussy, uh, went to the camera and says, you got to love this shit. As he's ejected, as his team is trying to fight for their playoff lives, down a game on the road with seven minutes left. That's selfish behavior. Somebody sent me a text last night and said, do you like Draymond? And I said, yes and no. Because I respect everything he does as a competitor, as a fighter. You know, he's a big part of this run. Would it be different if he were on a different team? You would never, ever run a play for him, ever. I mean, he's a different offensive player now. He's so much more reluctant than he was during some of those other, again, when I say peak or prime years, I mean that Golden State run from the middle of the teens on. But it's still kind of shocking to me that he could cost, arguably cost his team a championship in 2016 and put himself in a position to not only get ejected, but I don't know if he's going to get suspended or not because it just didn't stop. And the funny thing, too, is no one from the Golden State staff or any of his teammates even bothered because they know there's no point. And if you've ever talked to Draymond Green, I remember asking him in person on a radio show in Toronto, All-Star Weekend. And I was like, do you regret any of the stuff from 16? And he was like, no. He thought I was the asshole. <laughs> like, why? Why regret it? He like mentioned his contract. I got a ring and all this different stuff. You'd think most of us would be like, maybe don't do that again. Now, the stakes are not the same first round game two against Sacramento as they were in the finals in 2016. But to see this play out again, that's the part of him where I'm like, man, there's a lot of yeses when I think about Draymond, but there's some real peak no moments. And we got another one of those last night. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can 
Talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did. And even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Jason Kelsey, Eagles, and also now podcast host, his podcast, New Heights, with Jason <laughs> and Travis Kelsey. Comes out on Wednesdays. You get it wherever you get your podcast. Uh, joins us. Good to catch up again, man. What's going on? Yeah, it's been a while. Great to see you again, Ryan. Yeah, what did we do? We do like something. I saw you was on Greenlight. Yeah, we did like a movie podcast or something. Yeah, it was definitely out outside of my uh, expertise, but it was fun. Chris, was. Chris is always a good time. He's always gonna make it fun. Yeah, Chris is a, a good connector. He just he just really is and. Uh, we'll talk about him a little bit later on. I didn't want to start with Chris Long content because people are like, seriously, this is where we're going to start because we got we got Jalen Hurts under contract. Uh, your QB gets a big deal. It's kind of cool that it was without the drama uh, that we see at other places. Let's go back to the beginning, though. Yeah. You've been in the league a bunch of years at that point. Jalen comes in. We know his college resume. But what was your first impression of him? You know, um, obviously he came in in somewhat of a controversial manner. We had just signed Carson Wentz to this big deal. Uh, he's selected in the second round, and there was a lot of noise on why you would pick a quarterback in the second round when you just signed a long-term contract with a, another quarterback. So I think, you know, the the atmosphere in the locker room was tense a little bit. And, you know, he's a quiet guy by nature. So the first thing I do with quiet guys, I try and talk to him. I think you know, if if, if you re- allow him to remain quiet, that's one thing. I think you can facilitate a good environment just by talking to your teammates. You know, when you ask questions, a guy's going to respond. And for whatever reason, and I don't think this happened like uh, trying to do anything, but we ended up sitting next to each other in a couple meetings. And I've had a good relationship with Jalen pretty much from the get-go. And I, I still have a great relationship with Carson. Um, you know, my job is center is to try and facilitate a good environment for whoever's a quarterback. And, uh, you know, Jalen, obviously being new, I wanted to see what he's about. wanted to see how he sees things, how he operates, uh, offer kind of my frame of reference when needed, uh, but also just get to know the guy. And, um, man, right away, I think he was a mature, he was mature for a young player. You could see he had a, a, a driven attitude and a desire to improve and, gain knowledge and soak up whoever was talking to him, which I think is a great mindset for any rookie to have. Obviously, his college experience alone told you that, you know, this is a guy that wasn't going to be probably rattled by a lot of things. You know, being what happened to him in Alabama, having a transfer to Oklahoma, I mean, and then still dominating at a completely different university. Um, You know, I mean, you got to be a tough-minded individual to sustain that alone. And then um, what he was brought into in the NFL, another situation that I think, um, you know, I think it it was controversial at the time, which I think just not with anybody trying to make it a little bit awkward. I think it's going to be a little bit awkward. Um, and I think he handled it really, really well. And um, he's continued to handle that well. He's continued, you know, a lot of people say, how's he changed in the, short amount of time he's been in Philadelphia and he's changed obviously as a player he's improved but 
man, I think he's been pretty much the same guy since he stepped foot through the door. When he went through everything he went through at Alabama and the way he handled it, I was like, is this even real? Could you be this good at this already <laughs> at this age? And right. bas- he's basically every step of this, the pro career for him, it mirrors what we saw from him at Alabama. And I almost feel like, I don't know how you are, but when I see somebody so put together that way, he <laughs> just has like that command. I never think it's real. I'm like, there's yeah. no way you could be it like, seems this. like fake. Yeah. What, what yeah. is, what is it about him that makes it real? Where like the teammates you guys know, and it, it's just such a, it's such an awesome feeling when you start thinking about that guy behind center and you're like, okay, we like him. We trust him. And he, he's just like, we can, He's a backable dude as opposed to sometimes you have a quarterback. You're like, I don't know if this is the guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can tell with any teammate for the most part, whether it's authentic or something that's like a front put up just to appease fan bases or whatever. And I think that is apparent with how you are all the time, right? And, you know, this is this is who this guy is. You know, I think he was a coach's son. Um I mean, I know he was a coach's son. Um, his brother coaches. I think he's he's very much been brought up in this like football attitude mentality his whole life, and it's apparent. And um, you know, he has the the good combination of you know he's humble, knowing that he can get better, um, but at all times, man, he's confident. He's very confident in himself. He thinks he's a he's a bad man when he's on that field, and um, I think that's an important trait for any great quarterback. I think. You have to have the confidence to know that you can compete with anybody out there. But if you're overly confident and think you're the best thing out there, man, I don't know if you're going to be focused on improving the way every player needs to be. And um, yeah, I mean, he, he's just, I mean, he's, he's, he was mature the moment he stepped through the door with everything that happened in him in college. Um, and he's certainly carried that through uh, since he's been in the league. And um, I think, that mentality, uh, how he leads, all that, I'm sure, played a factor in the Eagles being confident in giving him the type of deal that he just signed. So extremely happy for him and his family. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, I, those numbers are just absurd. It's it's great. I love quarterbacks. It's a great position, man. It's just, but that is so crazy. But really, do you joke to do a you, better guy. Do you send... Hurts a text after it's announced that it's the most on paper money, which we all know the NFL contracts. But when you're the yeah. quarterback and you're good, it'll just get reworked. So the number comes out at 250 plus million. Can you send him a text? <laughs> I I called him right away and he changed his number like two days before. So I think he, he had a, uh, an idea that this was coming out and he's like, I'm getting ahead of this thing. And uh, he FaceTimed me back uh, pretty quickly. And um, we were, I was like, God. Damn, that's good money. Right? I'm, I'm just blown away. Nine digits, man. When you're in the nine digit category, that's like a whole nother realm of, uh, you know, just we, we joked around a little bit about that, but it was, it was more, um, you know, I just want to emphasize how proud I am of how, how he's gone about earning that. You know, I mean, it hasn't been the easiest route. This isn't like, you know, a first round draft pick who had a great college career, has been the top prospect his whole life never had any adversity. This dude's had, had so much adversity along the way and he's answered it. Not only has he answered it, but he's held like his dignity and his, and his level of, and it, I, you know, um, he doesn't make excuses and he doesn't do that publicly, but I also don't, I really, after knowing him for as long as I do, I don't think he does it to himself. Anybody that doubts him, anybody 
that says he's not good enough. He doesn't make it like this personal thing, spout off on social media, which I think is very, very common right now with young players in general. And um, I'm just really, really happy with the way he's done it, man. He's just gone out there and proven it. I think as players, we get wrapped up a lot of the times in exterior narratives from either media members, coaches, uh, fans. But at the end of the day, if you go out there and ball out, if you go out there and play well, you write the narrative. At the end of the day, they can't deny that. And that's something that he's done. Uh, he's let the his play on the field do the talking. And um, that's very extremely admirable on my end. I'll admit I doubted him coming out, but I also doubt I watch all day on Saturday and I'm I'm lost now. Yeah. He's going to be good at quarterback. And I thought yeah. his arm was always strong enough. We all know how strong he is as a guy. We all know the but it was just a matter of like, is is he getting through this? And then when you yeah. when you won all those games with him, I was like, I don't know if this is real. And then I remember yeah. last year, and and by the way, I was late to it because sure. it was after the Tennessee game where I went. Holy shit, is this guy good? Yeah. You know, and it was it was his development. Uh, yeah. Where there's other quarterbacks that maybe look the part, but they don't necessarily even develop all the other stuff. I just still I'll never stop talking about this position. I'll never stop admitting how clueless I can be at times because I'm still shocked how often the right guy doesn't work out and it feels like yeah. the right the wrong guy does. And I don't even mean to say that about Jalen as the wrong guy, but this was not only him as a person, but it was his own development. And for me this year, finally, at one point, I went, wow, I think he's actually going to be the guy, which is all yeah. the franchise is ever hoping for. Yeah, and you know, quarterback is the hardest position to evaluate. There's so many variables that go into the success of that player, um, besides just the intangible great attributes of that guy himself. I mean, the team he's around, the coaches he's with, how good his offensive line is, what his receivers look like. You're talking, what's the system like? Does the system fit him? Is the, um, are the, are the, is the play caller know how to utilize whatever that player is? I mean, there are so many things that go into whether a guy like that pans out. And then you tag on all the intangible things that we now know, I think everybody knows Jalen has. But those are things that you can't tell just by watching tape or, you know, uh, a guy coming out of college. So I think, I think quarterback is by far the hardest position to evaluate. And there have been guys who have done great in certain teams and areas and then gone out and changed landscapes and it hasn't gone well. There's been guys, vice versa, that have done poorly and then all of a sudden they're in a new situation. I mean, Nick Foles won a Super Bowl in Philadelphia and he's largely struggled in other areas. And, you know, I think it's just a impossible. It's, an impo it's not impossible. I think... A lot of people mess up quarterbacks. I, I don't think anybody's batting 100% on quarterback. I mean, it's just the hardest position in sports probably to evaluate um, because of all the variables involved. But Yeah. No, um, you're right. You're right. Okay, so let's go back to the, the end of the season. I know that's not as much fun for you as it is for uh, Travis. <laughs> you lose no. the Super Bowl. Was there a day that week where you were 100% sure you were going to retire? <sighs> And, um, you know, <laughs> I, I think that I was definitely leaning towards retiring. Um, I don't want to say a hundred percent because I, I didn't end up retiring, but I think, um, you know, especially after a season like that, I mean, it's long, 
you're, I mean, we played 20 plus games, including the Super Bowl. So it's, it's a very grueling season. And, um, and that takes its toll on you. You're, 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 you're worn out physically. You're worn out mentally and certainly losing a Super Bowl, you're worn out emotionally. I mean, even winning a Super Bowl, you're going to be worn out emotionally. It's, it's a lot. And, um, you know, trying to figure out whether you're going to do that again at that time, I think is really hard to be in the headspace of being able to commit to that again. So that's one of the reasons why I take my time. Um, most of the coaches that I've talked to, guys that have made that decision, all advise giving it time to kind of like, hey, let yourself recover, um, you know, let your your head clear a little bit and then come at it from a, a fresh perspective on whether you want to do that again. And I mean, to be to be frank, I still wake up and especially if I haven't taken anti-inflammatories, I'm like, man, am I really going to do like another one of these, right? Like you wake up, your your ankles hurt, your knees hurt, you're trying to lift and things you could do 10 years ago, you just don't do anymore because it doesn't work. And, um, you know, that's something that is still in my head. But I started taking anti-inflammatories again this week and I feel really good about where I'm at. So I'm, I'm feeling better now than I've ever felt about doing another year. Your entree into the NFL, though, is is it does remind me a lot of Jeff Saturday, who I got to know uh, at ESPN, yeah. where it was like, "Who's this guy?" I'm like, all right, you know, maybe get some training camp snaps. I got to tell you, your yeah. Wikipedia is fucking brutal to you too, man. It actually says, in what ways? <laughs> well, it's just so unnecessary because, all right, for those that don't know, you're the first Eagles rookie to start every game at center. All right. Yeah. And there's there's another vet who's in your way. You're a sixth round pick. Nobody thinks you might not even make the team for yeah. starting. And, and it was funny because it was like he got all the first team snaps before the third preseason game. And despite allowing a sack and a hold was yeah. named starter. And it's like, that's not necessary. <laughs> why is that in there? Why? <laughs> why is that in there? It's like, even though he sucked in the third preseason <laughs> game. <laughs> yeah, I mean. You know, I, I was drafted into a very fortunate situation. I know I was a six-round pick, but, you know, Howard Mudd, who coached Jeff Saturday, was my offensive line coach. He wanted a smaller athletic guy. And um, I'm assuming whoever wrote that uh, was a fan of Jamal Jackson, potentially. Um, and Jamal, at that point, was probably the better all-around player than I was. I mean, he had played in the league for seven or eight years, um, but he was just a different mold than what Howard wanted. Howard definitely wanted a smaller athletic guy like he had in Jeff Saturday. He drafted Kevin Mawai, I think, in Seattle as well. He wanted the guys that could move out and do things out in space and run the plays that he wanted to run. So I remember three days into camp. I mean, the after the first day we had pads on, um, he came up to me. He's like, hey, do you, do you want to play this year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to play. Jeff, of course, I, I mean, Howard, I want to play. And he said, um, you know, make sure you know the playbook because I like what I see. The coaches like what they see. Just make sure you can make all the calls and do all, everything mentally, and um, you're going to have a good shot. And not every I, rookie is granted that type of, you know, situation. But Yeah, but I think there's some parallels here, too, because I didn't know how much more I wanted to do on like the Hertz topic and then pivot that into Wentz. But, you know, Jamal's been the guy 
you know, you're this dude like, wait, you're going with the smaller guy from Cincinnati. Did you have the long hair back then? Or did you, did you do, do you grow the hair out and, after you get a few starts? I think I grew it out after a few starts. I think it was short to start. Yeah. Right. Smart. <laughs> I think that's the right move because you can't be a backup with long hair. Right. Like, yeah. Whenever I see college teams and it's like, dude, you don't even play and you were completely decked out. Like you got to tighten that up until you yeah. get first team snap. So was like the offensive line is a brotherhood. Although you guys probably are so good at just thinking team first because that's what you have to have in your DNA. I just wonder, I'm asking, was there yeah. any resistance perhaps to you? And I'm sure Jamal wasn't thrilled with it, but. Yeah, I mean, Jamal wasn't thrilled with it. He still wanted to play, like, you know. Sure. Whenever it comes in the middle of a guy's career, when you're not on the tail end of it, which I don't think Jamal thought he was at that point, um, you know, I think that he wanted to play. And. He was professional about it. He would still help me out and, and offer advice. Um, but I think there was some a little bit of resistance. I know there was probably more resistance from other guys. Um, Todd Harriman, who I'm really good friends with now, later told me that, you know, he went up to Andy Reid actually before the season started. And basically, I don't know exactly how he said it, but it was kind of like, yo, are we really going to play this rookie? Like, you know, I, I think we're better off with Jamal. And Andy's response was something along the lines of, you know, uh, you know, at some point you got your start and your chance and your opportunity. Like, let me do my job. Essentially, he kind of shut him down, and uh, that was it. And you know, Todd and I are great friends now, and I don't look at that any other way. You know, Todd was doing what he thought was in the best interest of the team and the group, and he obviously had played with Jamal for a long time. And I was a young player that you know I, I had a lot of question marks, and um, yeah, I. I think people got over that quickly. And once I was the starter, once that like competition level had stopped, everybody was in on just trying to make the line the best it could be. And um, I, Todd helped me immensely that year and throughout his tenure in Philadelphia. And Jamal, for that remaining year that he was there, helped me out. It was, but it, I mean, it was a competition in training camp and, and guys were upset because they knew that they could see as I got more reps, they know they're going to get cut. And that's kind of the nature of just humans. But for the most part, everybody was great. Yeah. And I guess I'll ask it one more time and kind of going back to the beginning. And, and obviously you shut me down if you want to, because I think a lot of us that watch Wentz, like I was like, man, they're moving up for him. And yeah. then, I mean, he would have had an MVP probably in 17 and then he gets hurt. And then you're just yeah. like, okay, well, it's a health thing. And then Jalen comes in, and I still wasn't sure. I'm not even sure the Eagles were sure of what they knew what they had at that point. And then yeah. Wentz goes to goes to the Colts. You're like, all right, he'll be good. And it's funny, too, because when you look at the stat line, it actually looks like it was a good year, but it didn't feel like that if you were watching it every single week. And then he ends up in Washington. And then you know, it kind of goes back to the Eagles thing where it's like, was she right to be annoyed about the situation? Sure. But then there was all this like, yeah. stuff where it was going back to Foles and everything. I think there were a lot of people, Jason, that have no idea that were speculating about Wentz. And I know he's your buddy, so I don't expect you to just be like, yeah, dude, he actually was a dick there for two years. Um, but it's it's yeah. it's a really it's a really fast fall from where he was at. And that's why we're like, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Carson. I mean, he had a he had a bad run there with, you know, tears his ACL, backup quarterback wins a Super Bowl, so that's going to affect you. Um, I think even if Carson's too proud to ever say that or admit that, I think it does affect you. Um, 
Then we finally move on from Nick Foles. Carson's starting to get some swagger back. We draft J- Jalen, right? And, um, you know, then Carson goes, or before we drafted Jalen, I think he had the injury to Jadavian Clowney in the playoff game the year before with the concussion, which I think affected him more than he let on. Um, so, you know, it was, it's kind of like just this one thing after the other uh, combined with we were just getting worse as a team, which didn't help Carson play better. Um, so I think, you know, all these things lumped in. I think Carson was in a really, really difficult situation. And I'm sure if all of us had like a do-over, there's ways we would rehandle things. Uh, I know there's ways I would handle things differently. But I always felt, and I know what would you do? Turns like, to, what, what do you, what do you think about? Like, what's the one I, thing? One of, you would one think of the things that I, one of the things that I would, one of the things that I would be more vocal about with Carson was his communication with guys and his communication in particular with guys on the offense. I think that he had a tendency, me and him had a great relationship. We thought about the game very similarly. Centers and quarterbacks usually have a great relationship. You're, you, you have to, be on the same page. Um, I don't think at times when things started going south, he had a strong enough relationship with certain receivers and guys that were able to weather those storms. Because when you're winning, nobody in the and nobody in the world had a problem with Carson Wentz in 2016-2017. Not a receiver, not a coach, not a fan. Everybody loved him. And when you're winning, nobody has a problem. Like nobody has room to complain. Uh, but when guys' numbers start not showing up, the wins don't show up, everybody looks for these reasons to, you know, I'm to show why they're not the reason that they're struggling, right? That's just what happens. You know, a receiver is going to look to, well, I'm not showing up because we're doing this, this, and this, and that's what this guy wants to do. Quarterback's going to say, I'm not performing because of this, this, and this, and that's be, like the, the the coordinator or whatever. Coordinator's going to blame yeah. Everybody, it's always the finger point starts. And the stronger those relationships are within a team, the stronger the leadership is, it just weathers those storms long enough for guys to continually take ownership. And the finger pointing just never works. It's it's a zero-sum game. You're not, once you start assigning somebody else as the reason you're not performing well, you have given up on you having control in your performance. And it's it's just not a good way to go. Um, and I think that that happens when guys don't have close enough relationships, right? And when you when you're when you genuinely communicate with a guy, when you when you show that you care about the other guy and you communicate that, I think that it's reciprocated and um you get to more of a a, a real reason about approaching and improving uh, rather than um, maybe turning. So that's something as, you know, a a veteran guy now that I wish I would have known a little bit more back then. And I don't think any of it was malicious. It certainly wasn't malicious on Carson's side. I don't think it was malicious on anybody on the offensive side. I just think that those, it just wasn't something that, um, was set up and and done on a routine basis so that when those struggles started happening, um, 
you could weather the hell of it. And, and to some extent, once you start struggling, it's going to happen. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be the greatest guy on earth. If the losing keeps happening, it only buys you a couple, couple more losses. Once you get three, four losses in, man, it, 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 turns, it can turn south pretty quick. I'm really impressed with the Eagles, though, as an organization, because you win that title six years ago, and I know clearly this year doesn't end the way you want it to, but whether it's Howie Roseman going, all right, I have core pieces here, but I'm going to build it around him, especially when you have a quarterback who's at a cap number where you feel like you can spend a little bit more elsewhere, and then for him to see in Sirianni somebody who he's like, I don't care. Like It's just so funny to me looking at Sirianni's intro press conference and yeah it was unimpressive as hell but it was also the first time a guy was being asked to do that and people that people that knew him people that I knew that had any kind of football relationship with him were like dude this guy's the best yeah and I was like okay and then I also look I'm gonna compliment you whether it's your personality which you know I know a little and also through mutual friends you know whether it's Fletcher being around forever or Graham being around forever you know I know Maybe Lane isn't isn't like the vocal Disney movie leader, <laughs> but sure. you know, watching him with that groin injury oh, get yeah. out of his of his stance and and backpedal and fucking fight all day long. Yep. I think it's a massive like top down credit to this organization to go through some serious drama and reinvent yourselves like this. And I, I think it's because you do have a lot of guys on this team that you know, in the simplest terms, get it, get yeah. what the goal is when there's just a lot of teams that don't necessarily have dudes that even know what that means. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've, this is my 13th season and I've been through it with four different head coaches. You know, that's, that's one thing that I think, I think the Eagles have really done a great job of even when it's time to, to retool or rebuild, I think how he likes to call it retooling. Um, it's not a complete, wholesale yard sale um you know this team was great before i got here right the organization's been outstanding since andy reed um and i think i learned the locker room culture and the way to go about my business and the way to communicate with teammates and everything from brent Selleck and todd harriman's and 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 all these guys before me and they learned from those guys before them and i think the eagles always have a pretty good tenured guys on the roster um i think that they value i know for a fact jeffrey Lurie values emotional intelligence but i think they they value keeping pieces around even in this these changes right like jeff stoutland has been the offensive line coach now with his third head coach um you know they they keep pieces around so you're not losing that sense of uh team and 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 loyalty a little bit, which is a bit of a facade because the moment you're not performing in this league, you're gonna you're you're done. But I mean, they they've they've done a phenomenal job, I think, throughout all of these transitions of somehow keeping that, and that's helped each coach kind of hit the ground running. I mean, we did the same thing with Doug Peterson in 2017. That was only his second year. Then we were in the Super Bowl. Flash forward five years, Nick Sirianni's second year, and we're in the Super Bowl. And both of those coaches heavily scrutinized hires at the time. Uh, one for a press conference and another, I think, just not many people, for whatever reason, believed that Doug Peterson was the guy. But either way, um, I think we had strong locker rooms in both of those instances. Howie did a great job of putting together incredible rosters um, that had a great 
blend of older players who got it. Uh, we made acquisitions of some older guys that got it and some young guys that had a lot of talent and that blend just really worked for us. Okay. Let's go back to 2017. Are you surprised Chris Long only had eight assists considering how caring he is and how giving he is for others? Eight assists. Eight assisted tackles. That's all Chris had. Yeah. That's what how it many, says. How many sacks? But he had a, he had a few sacks, especially in Five, the playoffs. I think. Yeah, he had a few big plays in the playoffs, especially. Well, he's, yeah, he's a big, he's the playmaker. He's a big play guy. That's right. Um, there are rumors you were going to retire because you were afraid of stunts from him in practice years ago. So just think, he almost ended his <laughs> career six years ago. That's what I'd heard. I read it. I, I do not remember that. I do remember the Patriots ran a bunch of stunts that were uh, pretty vicious. But um, in practice, Chris, uh, I don't remember him being the big stunt guy. He was very good around the edge and working. Him and Lane Johnson had a lot of fun battles. That was a fun matchup. Uh, and they ended up becoming unbelievable friends. But uh, I can still envision Chris long arming Lane into the pocket and Lane getting frustrated and uh, trying to beat him. And those were fun battles to watch. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, I think Chris was was a high draft pick and always wanted to be um, like the unbelievable uh, stat guy from a sack perspective. But I, I don't think that that ever uh, got in the way of him being an outstanding teammate. So I don't think that, although he wanted the numbers and he, and he at times even like lets you know he wanted the numbers, um, you know, he was at all times a great person to have in the room. And, um, you know, he helped Fletcher Cox play probably better than he's ever played. He got the most out of everybody in that room being the older guy. Yeah, I can't ever like that'd be the most devastating news ever to hear. It was like actually wasn't a great teammate. When you know him, <laughs> you know, he was he was built to be the guy that gets it. You know, what, what, there's and, some stuff from St. Louis that he, you know, he told me a story about one thing. I'm not gonna share it, but I was like, God damn, you're smart. I was like, yeah. that's an incredible way of like approaching this thing. And he just I don't know. He's the he's the right guy to, you know, you could you gotta have a was there's fifty three of you. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's. Well, I mean, uh, this this will sum it up perfectly. I've played with countless teammates in my twelve years. Chris is one of the few guys that I call routinely every year for advice in his perspective. Um, I think that what you're saying is right. He thinks about things a different way. He's incredibly intelligent. Um, he he has a great mind for navigating. Uh, different situations, and uh, he's helped me immensely in a number of different categories. But I think, um, you know, defensive ends. I don't. I don't think I've ever met a defensive end that doesn't care about a stat line. I think that's just a part of being that position. But um, he has a way to look at it holistically, and um, and from a teammate perspective, uh, his perspective in anything I've ever asked him has always been well thought out and and added value. And to have a guy like that in the room is invaluable in my opinion. Your podcast with your brother. Um, what was it like watching him host SNL? Dude. So I was there and I know, um, right. You were in the crowd and he, he killed it. Like <laughs> I, I did not expect him. I knew he was going to do well. 
because he has the personality for it. And but you know, they're reading off the cue cards, and my brother is not the best reader. Like he's good at acting and everything, and I'm wondering how this is going to go. Um, neither one of us are great readers, but uh, he, uh, you know, he every performance you could see him do better and better and warming up. Um, and when it came time for the live show, man, it was like lights on. That was the best one he had the entire week. And um, I don't think that's any surprise, but I just, it was, it was so fun to watch him on the stage, see the skits that he was doing. I mean, some of the things these writers can like the American girl skit. I was like floored that they were even doing this. Um, But the more impressive thing through the week, I mean, Travis was impressive. I had never been to an SNL taping. I had never seen anything like that. I mean, dude, the, amount of people necessary to make that thing go off and the stage people, the, the hair and makeup, everybody's got like their own pit crew for every person. And after you're in one skit, you're running around. And it was, it was honestly, it was like game day. It was like a Sunday game. And, you know, obviously we have all these people around us that help us get ready, whether it's trainers, strength staff, uh, you know, coaches. And um, it, it felt, very, very similar. And it was really cool to see how that all happens and what it takes to get it ready. And the, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated at watching, uh, like, you know, how stuff happens, you know, how, how stuff's made used to be a great show on, uh, I don't know, discovery or whatever that was on. I love how stuff um, gets made. I would watch because it was like yeah, a Canadian man. narrator, right? I was living in a hotel in Connecticut yeah. at the time <laughs> and I'd be like, Oh shit. And then I got to know how this is made. I actually yeah. thought there was a way to do it a little bit better. It felt a little Canadian for me, but <laughs> I don't know yeah. what that means necessarily, but I, sometimes it would move a little too fast. Like okay. I would go, wait, I feel like we're missing a step on these, on these buttons. You yeah. Know? I don't know we, what it we was. We can go like, deeper. What, are you yeah, a big, yeah. are you a big, like deadliest catch? Are you on the gold? I, I liked deadliest catch a little bit for a couple seasons. And then I got out of it. I, I was what were my favorite, man, those were, I don't even, are those still up? And I, I used to love uh, Pawn Stars. Um, I, I liked. I never liked Pawn Stars. Yeah, I, I liked it. Now when I go back at it, it's like cringy. Like it's so fake, it's terrible. But I loved it at the time. I was all in on Pawn Stars. And, what, I didn't, uh, what I didn't like is like the, the middle guy, Rick, who's the main yeah. guy, was the son, yeah. and then his son was doing it, and then it was like, it was almost like watching Billy Donovan's first interviews after he played for Rick Pitino. I yeah. know you're not going to get that reference, but I do like, not know the, the the father. You know, you roll in with the Rolex, and he's like, "Oh, it's got a scratch on it," and you're like, yeah. "Oh, okay, here we go. We're already knocking the price down." You're you're mentally giving the customer an idea that he's at this disadvantage. Sure, you're shitting on his item as soon as he walks through the door. Yeah, and then once the son started getting more involved, he'd be like. Yep, I don't know. This binder is a little weak. And I was like, you got to come up with a different game. <laughs> like you can't run your. You're just stealing Rick's game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Which, you know, every episode, every guy would walk in. Yeah. You know, you'd be sitting there with a brick of gold. He's like, ah, oh, there's a smudge mark on it. <laughs> so I never, I never got into Pawn Stars, although I loved Gold Rush. But I admit, I don't know. It's really fucked up. Like I was rooting for everybody to fail. And then I felt really gold guilty rush? about it. Yeah, I was feeling really guilty about it because something would break and something would go wrong the first couple seasons. I was like, oh, my God, yeah. these guys suck at this. <laughs> and then I pivoted. I don't know if I got nicer as I got older, 
then I was kind of like hoping everybody did well, but then Parker was so shitty to all of his staff and then he was killing everybody because he was better at it, but he was just so nasty to all the dudes that worked on his crew that I couldn't watch it anymore. And one yeah. of my close friends produced it. He was oh, the nice. guy that would did Christo who would do the post show and he would go out yeah. there. He, we went to college together. And so I was just harassing him all the time, but he was pretty tight ship. He wouldn't tell me much about what was going on. Yeah. So, I'm just trying to think of you. I'm trying to picture you. I mean, reality. I, I watched a couple seasons of Gold Rush. Um, I don't even know if that was what it's called, but yeah, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you're right. And then uh, I think I watched like a season of Ice Road Chuckers. I definitely was on that channel a lot in that like era of shows that was just kind of like on repeat. What was the? Uh, oh my gosh, the uh, the lockers with all the the random junk that they would bid on. Uh, Storage Wars. Storage Wars. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Kyle, Kyle loves storage. <laughs> so he he normally like, doesn't turn his mic on during interviews, but he couldn't he couldn't go any longer with that confusion. So, do you think that you do you think Travis is fucking up your TV aspirations to host one of these shows? Is my long term question. <laughs> well, is why, he outshining why, you? Well, uh, Travis has been outshining me forever, so there's no way uh, that that's going to get any more so. Um, yeah, I think uh, Travis. That SNL, I mean, this dude could legitimately, I could see him being in movies now after that performance. Like, and um, I think my mom and I have always talked that that's something that um, we could see him doing, just his personality fits it. And I think he would want to do it. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I think, I think there's a lot of other things hurting my, uh, my movie, uh, uh, aspirations than my brother i don't think that that's going to hold me back but um i think trav for sure i could there's i could see him hosting game shows going the michael strahan route uh being in movies i think all that stuff is on the table for him i appreciate the time jason again you want to check out his podcast with his brother new heights out every wednesday uh it's an incredible career first Team All Pro five times, six rounder to that kind of number. It's it's an unbelievable resume, and we're happy you're coming back another year. All righty, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a blast. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over ninety five live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. The book, The Wager, is out now. David Grand, the author, who is an incredible resume, Lost City of Z, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, and of course, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a movie that's going to be coming out on Apple TV later this year. It says October. Uh, Martin Scorsese, Leo DiCaprio, probably heard of those guys, will be involved. So, David, this is uh, this is an awesome resume. Now, I'm going to tell a little backstory. I'm going to share this with everybody. I saw your book kind of like promoted because, you know, everybody's everybody knows what we're all thinking and doing now on our phones and laptops. And it was like, hey, a book that may interest you. And it was like The Wager. And I check it out. I'm like, okay. Sailing the seas, mutiny, the whole deal, 1700s. I was like, all right, this is perfect. I go, I'm going to pre-order this. This is how into this book I already am. I'm going to pre-order it months and months ahead of time, knowing I'll forget when it shows up one day. David sends me an email. I don't make the connection. He's like, hey, I have this book coming out. I'd love to come on and talk to you. You might like this. 
And I'm like, yeah, I think I would like this. And I say, okay, yeah, let's, let's do it. And then I'm like, yeah, actually, I already pre-ordered this whole thing. I read it. And here is David. So thanks for joining us today, man. Uh, Long preamble. But... I knew my target audience. <laughs> you did. I was like, what is this? I was like, who's hitting me up? And then I went through it. I go, not only am I into this, I already bought it. It took me literally just days to read it. It moves fast. It's a great read. Um, and the opening line in the prologue is, is maybe my favorite part. I got off to a hot start. Quote, the only impartial witness was the sun. So let's start at the beginning of this journey. 1740 England, what's going on? Yeah, so there is an imperial war between Great Britain and Spain. Great Britain is seeking to expand its empire into Latin America. And it sets this expedition off on a secret mission to capture a Spanish galleon filled with treasure which was known as the prize of all the oceans. And the wager ship was one of the uh, ships in that expedition, in that squadron. It ends up in disastrous uh, condition after the ship runs aground and they end up castaways on this desolate island. So what I knew was, was you know, the staffing of these ships, they didn't exactly have ZipRecruiter back then. Um, can you help us better understand the press gangs and... Like just the the Royal Navy trying to find a way to get their numbers up on these seven ships that were going to go out kind of treasure hunting among the Spanish uh, ships themselves. Yeah. So uh, these ships were really interesting. I learned a ton uh, researching this book. I mean, they were the engineering marvels of their time. Uh, they were three-masted. They were loaded with cannons. Um, they were both lethal instruments because they were designed for war, but they were also designed to be the homes of seamen who had lived together for as long as three years uh, at a time. Um, but uh, the most important element of all was they needed skilled seamen to operate these vessels. And the British Navy had exhausted its supply of volunteers. And so it sent out these press gangs who would literally just look at people walking down the streets and ports and towns coming off boats. If you, you know, had like a round hat that looked like a seaman's hat, or if you had a little tar on your fingertips, which meant you worked on a ship because tar was used on a ship, they would just round you up and make you forcibly and unwillingly uh, go on this expedition. The craziest part of all those, they were still short of men after rounding up hundreds of pressmen that the Admiralty went so far as to round up soldiers from a retirement home and take men who were in their 60s and 70s, many of whom were missing an assortment of limbs and who were so ill at the time they had to be lifted on stretchers. I don't mean to laugh, but it's just so dark. Um, lifted on stretchers onto these ships. Everybody knew they were sailing to their death. Now, the seeds of the destruction of this expedition can be traced right back to its launching. Yeah, because it's it's a ton of boys. It's hundreds of people that don't want to be there. You have members of the army that have no interest in the sea whatsoever, and they're hurting for numbers so bad. So these seven ships take off as, as this being the start, and you think that part of it's bad. Like, look, I've read enough about just <laughs> these voyages to know it's not the greatest time ever, but my God, was this one of the all-timers. Can you yeah. get into more detail about not ex understanding scurvy? Like, it's fucking hell at water. It is. And, and this expedition in particular. So first, like, so the first, first they find out they're being chased by a Spanish armada. Then they try to round Cape Horn. And for listeners who don't know Cape Horn, these are 
among the worst, if not the worst seas in the world, because it's the only place on the earth where the seas travel around the globe uninterrupted for 13,000 miles. So they accumulate enormous power. So as these ships are coming around the horn, you know, you could have a 90 foot wave dwarfing their mass. You have the strongest currents on earth, and then you have the winds that were blowing at hurricane force and can accelerate to as much as 200 miles per hour. There's a great line from Herman Melville, who later made uh, 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 his way around the horn. He compared it to a descent in hell, into hell in Dante's Inferno. And so at the very moment when these ships are just being battered, being flooded, nearly capsizing, and they need everybody to persevere, the men begin to succumb to scurvy. And they have one of the worst outbreaks of scurvy ever recorded at sea. Their hair begins to fall out, their teeth fall out. And something which I did not know about until I worked on this book, I just had a vague idea of scurvy, which was um, it can affect your senses. And many of the seamen described the disease getting into the brain and the men went raving mad. And hundreds and hundreds of them perished um, and their bodies were just thrown unceremoniously into the sea. And before they understood that it was a lack of vitamin C and other deficiencies, which is why, you know, sailors became limeys and, you know, um, there was a thought, at least some of the medical books that you dug through, and maybe it was referenced in other books that you had studied to put this story together. But what I had never heard before was there was a common belief prior to figuring out the vitamin deficiency part of it, that it was just something that the ocean did to the human body. You know, it was almost this mythological thing. And so that you would see some men with scurvy buried up to their neck on a beach, feeling as if the the connection to actual land, to mass, would reverse yes, to mass, whatever the, the ocean particles. did. Like, yes. just insane. Yes, it just, yes. It's so crazy. But you know, what's interesting. I happened to be working on that section of the book at the very time when COVID was happening. And it was like the beginning of COVID where you were like, can I touch the package? You know, like things like now we realize, oh, actually, that's fine. We could have totally touched the package. We didn't need to leave the, the package at the door for 24 hours. And you could see back then the lack of scientific understanding leading to just utter paranoia and wild theories. And yes, one of the theories was the sense of, well, why when they get back to land, do they often get better? So maybe there's something in the property of the land if we bury them. Um, and what they didn't know was it was just a lack of fruit and vegetables in their diet. They just needed vitamin C. Of course, the great tragedy was, was this expedition had stopped in Brazil before it came around Cape Horn. And it was, there was stopped on an island. It was, there was actually limes. Um, they had plenty of limes, but they didn't know they needed them for the ships. And of course, they didn't have refrigeration back then. So they didn't actually bring fruit and vegetables on ship. So in any case, that's what happened. I want to ask about the terminology um, that, oh, yeah. that has yeah. had nothing to do specifically with the story, but I, as soon as I saw it early on, I was like, I love this. Um, the number of phrases that we still use today that are directly related to nautical adventures. Um, give us, give us your favorite ones here. And I have, I have a few that I had underlined yeah. as well. Well, what's so, what's so interesting too is like, I always say about history is it shapes the present, even when we're completely unaware of it. So I didn't know that for all my life, I've been speaking these idioms that derive from the age of sail. Um, and there are so many great phrases. Uh, Piping hot was the bosun's whistle when the hot meal was coming. Pipe down was when he wanted that he would blow his whistle for the men to quiet. Scuttlebutt was one of my favorite. Scuttlebutt was basically just a barrel on the ship, which they would fill with water. 
the seamen would get the rations of water, but what would they do? They would kind of wait around the barrel while they waited for the rations. What would they do? They would gossip. So we use the word uh, scuttlebutt. Um, one of my favorites, which came later, was the phrase from Horatio Admiral Nelson when he wanted to ignore a superior's order and signal flag to retreat. He decided to put his telescope up to his blind eye. So to turn a blind eye came from came from that. I could go on and on. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe I had never heard the blind eye one. So instead of, you know, he just basically was like, he looked at the telescope with the wrong eye on purpose. Yeah. And now it all makes sense. It's like, yeah. oh, you're turning a blind eye, which means you actually know what you're doing. And it'd be like, why would that ever start? I mean, the scuttlebutt thing was actually just a real, like piecing the definition of what scuttle and butt would be. Yeah. Um, and then three sheets to the wind, which oh, everybody's been saying forever. You come was, out of a bar, you say three sheets to the wind. <laughs> and so three sheets, which I, I think everybody knew, but I don't know if they know the specific origin. If it's when three sheets were turned that way, then the boat moves in a manner that's completely unpredictable, drunkard. Yeah, and, drunkard. Uh, like, yeah. There you go. I'll give you one. I'll give you one more of my favorites because it was just like I was just like you got to be kidding me. Under the weather, under the weather, you just always said okay. Under the weather, just mean well, you mean you're sick. You kind of feel under the weather. It just seemed like I don't know. It seemed like a nice metaphor. It turns out to be literal. When seamen were sick on a ship, they no longer served on watch. They were allowed to rest below deck, so they were quite literally under the weather. So that's why we say under the weather. (laughs) Just a couple boat nerds here, uh, nerding (laughs) out. out. All right. Okay. Um, All right. So we now are a few months from England. Um, They're making their way towards the Drake Passage, which is the tip of South America to the tip of uh, Antarctica. And, you know, when you look at it on a map, which I don't spend a ton of time on that part of the globe looking at that map, it's always a little reminder of, to your point, all of this water converging on an area that it it's best 600 miles wide. Um, it's can we a start crazy though, funnel. Yeah. Can we start kind of with the ominous tone though that you have about this trip? Again, as we understand all the people that are on board, not necessarily wanting to be there, probably over 50% of them um, in this treasure hunt chase, essentially after this other boat from the Spanish Armada. But St. Julian, I thought the, the history behind that with Magellan and Francis Drake, uh, you do a really good job of kind of planting the seed of like, understand mutiny like people may not like their workplace conditions now and go what's the big deal um this was not cool back then to to not exactly like your superiors yes and and these expeditions um because of their extreme condition because they are these kind of laboratories testing the human condition under these extreme circumstances can often lead to insurrection, rebellion. If you have a tyrannical leader, an abusive leader, you're just exhausted or you just want to go home. And so they stop at St. Catherine, which is this island, I mean, at St. Julian, this uh, off Brazil. And uh, when they are there, uh, they discover the place where on Magellan's expedition, um, centuries earlier. Um, uh, 1520, yeah. 1520. Yeah. Magellan, yeah. Right. Yeah. There had been a uh, rebellion and uh, Magellan had uh, one of the men uh, hanged there um, and killed. Um, and then, of course, Drake came later before my expedition I wrote about, but comes later. And in the very same place, 
he he's paranoid about a rebellion. He probably accuses someone falsely and ends up killing, hanging this man falsely in the same place. So the the men on uh, on the expedition on the wager and part of the squadron, they go to this place and they can kind of just feel these infernal spirits and they want to get the hell out of there. Um, of course, they're kind of it's more like a prophecy than anything else. Right, and they they kind of you know I don't know if it's it's the uh... How it's just, oh, whenever I read any like papers from people from the past, it, it kind of speaks to like, you think hyperbole is out of control now. <laughs> like back then, a guy wouldn't, you know, a guy could, could have a fucking ear of corn delivered to his house and he would say, on this majestic day, this ear of corn changes the path of man. And you're like, relax. Yes, yes, like, yes, it's, yes, just, yes, <laughs> it's very florid. Yes, right, right. Yes. It's so, very so florid. whenever I'm reading about the Drake, passage part of it in saint julian and it's like the isle of blood and oh like yeah the, the water they, they were acting they were describing the waters if it was still red from the murders yes. of, of mutinous <laughs> yes. uh revolt so all right we're we're still we're still technically seven ships in we're making yeah. around cape horn and this is like clearly people had heard about it now 200 300 years removed uh you know columbus got to what he got to East South America in 1494, which I thought it was really interesting that the Pope just said, hey, the west side of South America, that's Spanish. The east side, Portugal, done and done. Get to work. Um, start stealing all their shit. So people knew about Cape Horn in 1740, 1741, moving on. What happens to this group as they're trying to make this pass? Yeah. So very few had rounded it. They didn't even know the right time in which to round it. Um, it was such a frightening part to seamen that the Spanish, after they colonized much of Latin America, after trying to use the horn as a way to kind of move their ships and 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 uh, for transport and cargo and trade, decided so perilous they decide they will just sail to Panama and then haul the goods from the ship from the Atlantic overland through the jungle where many of them would die of yellow fever um, and malaria, and then put them back on ships on another ship on the Pacific side. So that's how dangerous these seas are. And, and as we discussed, the it is this crazy funnel. I mean, there is like, you know, whenever you delve into something, you 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 start to, you know, you, I had always just heard that, okay, Cape Horn, bad seas, but I had no understanding why. You know, I did understand again that the seas just flowed uninterrupted around the earth. 13,000 miles accumulating that power. Then they enter that funnel, that Drake panel. There's also a shallowing. There's a sudden shallowing in the terrain. So the water goes from very deep to very shallow. All of these just generate these massive uh, oceanic forces from 90 foot waves to these unbelievable winds uh, to seas that, uh, you know, just incredibly powerful currents. And these ships just become bandied about. They just become bandied about like uh, as if they were no more than rowboats. And the other thing that's really interesting about these ships is even though they were these engineering marvels of the day, they're made of all very perishable materials. They're made mostly of wood. And so even though they're made of hard oak, they're very vulnerable to the elements of the sea. So a couple of the ships go, we're too small. We're out of here. Yeah, um, they retreat. Yep. And they, the other part of this is throughout all of this weather, they're trying to stay in communication. They're trying to trying to stay aware of each other. Um, and so the fact that they would even know, like, hey, we don't know if those guys are dead forever if they went back to England. Uh, it appears the lead ship and the wager are separated here, and the wager finds itself in a precarious spot. 
uh, would it would now be Chile, where it's we're talking what the southwestern kind of tip of this area, where it's not just getting past Cape Horn. Like when you look at some other stuff, when I've, I've looked in the past at like these, like the Astoria book, right, where it goes all the way around. Like you had to shoot it way west of South America to not even mess around with that coastline, which seemed to be just as dangerous as any other place you could get in trouble. Yes. The ships, you know, that was something that was really interesting too. You know, just like, you know, you just take things for granted. I mean, you know, figure there's not cell phones, but you, when you suddenly realize that on these ships, there's no way to communicate. So the way they would communicate with each other in the storm, they would fire their guns or they would hang lanterns and it was a way to signal. And they're desperate to stay close together because they know if they get caught on their loan, by themselves would be no one there to rescue them. But in the storm, all the ship scatters. You said some turn back. The wager finds itself all alone, alone to its own destiny, somehow manages to get around the horn, but up the Cape of Chile, which is still, um, the skis are still and the winds are, are unrelenting. And they are sailing like so many seamen back then partially blind because they did not know their longitude. To know their longitude would have required a reliable clock. And those had yet to be invented on a ship. So they have to rely on dead reckoning, which is a little more than a leap of faith <laughs> and some informed guesswork. And it turns out that their estimation of their longitude of where the coast of Chile is, they didn't have good maps. I mean, they, there weren't enough British people going along here. Um, turns out to be wrong and not just wrong, but wrong by hundreds and hundreds of miles. And suddenly the wager is barreling and it hits a submerged rock in what is known as the Golfo de Penas, which translates as the Gulf of Sorrows, or some prefer to call it, as I call it, the Gulf of Pain. That name should have told you everything. <laughs> yeah, right. Gulf Get of the pain. hell out. <laughs> Let's avoid that spot. So the ship is taking on water. There's no way it'll survive. They are at least near land. Um, what happens next? Yeah, so they hit this rock. The rudder shatters. A two-ton anchor falls through the bottom of the ship, leaving this gaping hole. Then another wave comes in and kind of sweeps the wager off the rocks after it hit. And it's careening through a mindful of rocks with no rudder to steer by and with water pouring into the ship until finally it crashes into more rocks, a cluster of rocks, and the ship begins to completely break apart. The planks shatter, the decks cave in, the masts come down. Um, all the water starts filling in the bottom of the ship. The rats are scurrying up. Where those who were suffering from scurvy, who weren't able to get out of their hammocks, they all drowned as the water came in. But the ship did not completely sink yet. It became sandwiched between a kind of pillar of rocks. And as some of the survivors climb up to the remnants of these ruins, they peer out in the distance and through the mist, they can see an island. So they get to the island. Um, I think this would be a good part. I mean, I could have done this a couple different ways. You do great character development, backstory of each of the people. The captain of the wager, uh, David Cheek. Let's just update the audience kind of on his story arc now leading to this point of his ship has crashed and they're about to hang out on this deserted island with any man that can make it to the to land alive. Yes. So um, I tell the book kind of an unusual structure from the perspective of three individuals, three members who were on the wager. One of them is Captain Cheap. He was somebody who back on land was kind of always dogged by debts. He was chased by creditors. He was kind of frustrated and bitter without his success. He had always found refuge in the kind of very regimented wooden world of a ship. 
And on this voyage, he had finally attained what he had always dreamed of. He had been named and become a captain of his ship. That's all he ever wanted, all he had ever longed for. And then, of course, the ship wrecks. He loses the ships. He loses his dream. And he suddenly is, in a weird way, on land, set at sea because he has lost the structure of the Navy. And now what is he going to do? And how is he going to maintain order? And so he believes now that they're on land, he should still be the commander because he was the commander of the ship. He still has the title. And he wants to govern by the same kind of regimented hierarchical way in which he had governed on the ship by the laws of the admiralty. Had people turned on him yet? Or, I mean, was it just kind of the classic, like, subordinates just eventually are going to turn on their captain because i mean as we mentioned before like that's not exactly something that was healthy to do there was all sorts of punishment it was understood that you know this is the hierarchy of the military here but in these extenuating circumstances how does that play out both historically and kind of in this story yeah so i mean chief was a, a very brave he was very courageous he was also a very stubborn he lacked some of the instinctive qualities of leadership there had been some grumbling building after he went around Cape Horn, when he was so determined to kind of fulfill the mission that he'd been sent off, where others on the ship were like, you know, maybe we should change course and head further out. And he was just so stubborn. So some grumbled about the wreck, could it have been his responsibility? But the real tensions build on that island. And he lacks some of that steady composure and the ability to fully inspire. Um, but he's a complex figure, as are all the men on the island. They're all deeply fallible, but you can understand them. They're not reductively good and they're not reductively evil. And one moment you could see this great act of selflessness and gallantry, and moments later you might see an act of shocking brutality. Yeah, I'm not going to tell the rest of the story because I want people to know that once they get there, there's a real Lord of the Flies kind of feeling. Uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite lines in any book I've ever read in Sapiens that essentially like the first man once upright after 30 was like, all right, there's too many people. And then they would break off and more people. And then once they get to 30, it was like, we can't, not everybody's has the same goals. <laughs> like some of us are carrying this group and it's just, I don't know, man, we are wired a very specific way. And once they got to the island, they realize I don't want to be with them and these guys don't want to be with these guys. And then the most amazing part is they feel like they're left for dead. It becomes a race to go home to tell the story that most benefits the person who is home. So I'm going to leave the rest of that up to the audience to go ahead and track this down uh, because it is that good of a book. That's how much I enjoyed it. But specific to your research on this book, this must have been an incredible maze of trying to figure out your own personal bias of like which character you yeah. believed and which ones you didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you're very neutral in the book, but I think yeah. I can still kind of tell based yeah. on the information presented. Yeah. So, I mean, what's so, what was so interesting to me is when I came across the story, I was like, wow, this is one of the craziest sea yarns I've ever seen. One of the greatest tales of survival. Um, but one of the things that interested me so much was not only what had happened on that island, but what happens when some of these castaways do come back to England and after everything they've been through, they could be hanged for their alleged crimes. And they publish these kind of wildly conflicting accounts. And so after waging a war 
over all the elements, over scurvy and uh, these typhoons and these tidal waves and starvation and these castaway voyages, they suddenly begin to wage this war of the truth. And there is information, misinformation, there is disinformation, there is even an 18th century uh, version, uh, an allegation of a kind of fake news. And so what was so crazy is when I was researching this story, we were, it was at a time when we were having these battles here in the U.S. So I would go to these archives and be like looking through these crumbling, dusty manuscripts that like if you just blew on them or touched them, they might disintegrate. And you'd be reading about, oh my God, I'm like, they're fighting. And then I would come home and you like flip on the news or read the paper. You're like, oh my God, it's the, the same damn thing. But so you had to kind of waft through, you know, it was like being on Twitter or something where you just, it's like everybody's just, you know, they're trolling you and what is the truth and how do I get the truth? Um, and so, yeah, you had to, uh, you know, drill down on the accounts. The amazing thing is that there is a surprising trove of these firsthand documents that have survived. I mean, that's right. Also- the, the real documents, the yeah. journals from yeah. these survivors. Yeah, these right. survivors, documents, they, they went around the world. Some of them were like in flooded ships. Some of them were on the shipwreck. Some of these documents were kept when they were on the island with quill and paper. I mean, it's kind of crazy. And you can actually go read them. And so, um, you know, you have to kind of wade through them and corroborate them. The interesting thing is they mostly agree on the general facts. The manipulation is more subtle and I think often more true to the way we deceive and the way we deceive ourselves and the way we shape our stories. It's less about an outright lie than what they leave out of their accounts. You know, my, my favorite example is, um, you know, one senior officer will say on the island in his account, I was forced to proceed to extremities. I mean, you could not think of a more like bureaucratic, like some say out of like <laughs> Germany and like, you know, Nazi, you know, like, we, you know, it's like this mere banality, like forced to proceed to extremities. And then you pick up the other account and you're like, oh, he shot him right in the head and he bled out in my hand. You know, and you're like, so I did make this unusual decision to kind of be transparent about the war to kind of show how it's playing out. So you get to see these three competing accounts. I think by showing each three, you probably get a pretty close to the truth, although you can never get perfectly there. There's no omniscient God, you know, unless you were the impartial witness of the sun where we're we're subject to some of their spin. But I do think you could get pretty close to approximation. And you see how we often shape our stories. And so what's, to me, what really fascinates the story, it's like, it's crazy yarn. It's about society, civilization, sent into these Hobbesian states, but it's also about truth. I mean, it really is about the nature of truth, how we tell stories and how nations tell stories and manipulate their stories. What do they leave out of the narratives? (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't, I mean, you know, the lesson that I, I constantly remind the audience is how often whenever I read any stuff from any period of history, you know, I was reading about the fall of Rome and every time they had a certain form of government and leadership, they'd be like, well, this doesn't work. I'd be like, let's go do this one. And then they would cycle through like whatever it was. And then it was like, you know, what wasn't bad was this one. And it was like, I think that's more a reflection of us than it is any form of government or leadership. And when you follow the three narratives of the characters that you use, like one character, I think most of us, after you read the book, you'd be like, okay, I think I trust this character. Yes, I there's agree. One, there's one where you go, that's not great. But then you're also like, that's not that bad. And yes. then there's another one where I'm like, maybe you did something terrible, but I totally understand why you did it. Yes, and, I totally agree. That, that, and, I, and I'm being vague here, obviously, yeah, by design, yeah. but 
the thing that reminded me of of kind of today is that one of the characters decided he was just going to tweet as much shit as he possibly could to sway the opinion. And it's like, if somebody actually is that, I can't tell of like, do you have something to hide? You're being so <laughs> proactive about sharing your story. <laughs> And the other person was like, I don't want to tweet, but yeah. they were like, I have to kind of, so <laughs> yeah. maybe I'll get a burner account. And and it's all to save your life. Okay. Yeah. It's all to save your fucking life. And look, on top of this, we didn't even get to it. So when this is optioned into a movie, I don't know if the directors will understand how important and how just visually how much fun it will be to see a battle between one of the ships that we kind of lose track of and yes. the Spanish um target here uh i wonder if they'll they'll just say hey we don't we don't too much to shoot another one of those scenes we'll cut that part out it, it doesn't even though i loved it it was like a great little surprise yes. in the book i was like yes. oh here we go and your account firsthand of this battle where one ship's completely out man uh on the last finishing thought you got to go there you got to check it out and when you see the pictures of the coastline and how jagged this whole thing is to think of these dudes in a 20-foot raft or canoe a uh, canoe trying to paddle around it at all and it never working and you're like, oh, now I've, that I've seen the pictures, I understand why this would never work, especially yes. with guys this week, you know, hanging on to life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I spent the first uh, two years researching the book in a way that is suited to my uh, very uh, easily physical attributes, which was in a lot of archives. Kind of thought that's where I would do all my work. Um, but after about two years, you know, you always have that kind of gnawing feeling like, what don't I know? And you just, I always just had this style, like I'd never been to that part of the world. It's like, can I fully understand? Because your description of each of the individuals, I think was, I really appreciate it because you're not trying to necessarily absolve them or even necessarily sympathize with them, but you're always trying to understand them. And I was like, how can I understand what they went through on this island unless I went there? So I found this Chilean captain uh, who could take me. And, um, you know, I got sent a photograph of the boat. And I was like, oh, okay, this looks good. This looks big. And then I got to Chile. I won't get into how long it took me to get to this place. But I had to take like multiple planes, cars, ferries. I finally get to this island, Chiloway Island, which is about 350 miles I'm curious away. though, how, how long from like the domestic, like, sort of was, easy so, destination to this one how many how about, much? it took four days no kidding yeah four days okay. to get to to get to Chilway island and that was the island where we were then going to depart from on the boat um and it would be about a 350 miles journey south to what is now wager island in the gulf of Peggy. and uh, when i got in i looked at the boat i was like oh that that doesn't quite look like it did in the pictures. It looks really pretty small. It was wood heated. It was heated by a wood stove. It's winter out. So it's about 30 degrees out. It's kind of raining or sleeting. And, uh, you know, there's just a few people on board. And then we can't even get out of the port. The Coast Guard have closed the port because the weather's so tempestuous. I didn't know that was true. I mean, I know you go to Martha's Vineyard and stuff. Like, I, I always thought that you wanted to commit suicide at sea. You were allowed to. I didn't know that. Like, there they like literally said, no, you cannot leave this port. So we were not allowed to leave the port. So like one day passed and we're just like stuck on the ship. D day two, day three, finally day four, they let us out. We slip out at dawn. We enter these channels of Patagonia, which are actually calm because they're kind of sheltered by the ocean. These little islands that you're kind of winding through. Darwin passed through them on the Beagle. You're kind of going through these islands. It's very chillingly beautiful. But then after a certain number of days, the captain comes and he says, now to get the way dry, then we must go out into the open ocean. 
And so we head out into the open ocean, and that's when I got my first glimpse of these seas. And uh, yeah, they're pretty terrifying. Um, uh, you know, they dwarfed the boat. And I think part of it was just the boat was just very top-heavy. It was really designed for channels, not for the big ocean. And so we were just like a tin can gets just tossed about. I could not stand for like 10 hours a day. I had to sit on the floor of the boat holding on, because if I were to stand, I would have just been, you know heaved across the boat. Um, I had all the kind of, and I'm used to see, I don't normally get seasick. I had, I was like an experiment for every like advertisement at four in the morning for seasickness, like things I had like patches going and bands on the wrists and Dramamine. Like I was like a drunk on Dramamine. Um, and then I had to pass the time. So I put on, I put on a recording of Moby Dick. Um, which in retrospect was not the most soothing thing to have done. So here I am just being tossed about in these seas, listening to Moby Dick. Um, but the captain was very skillful. He really was. He was very capable uh, commander, very steady, very composed. He led us through these seas. He gets us through the Gulf of pain. Um, and I won't make this go on too long, but just one thing that was remarkable is we're coming through the Gulf of pain. He points to some islands and he says, oh, that's Hobbs and that's Smith. I'm like, God, those are such English sounding names. They sound familiar. And I had brought some of the journals with me from the castaways. I looked at them. It turns out that that was where some of the castaways had been forced to be abandoned when one of the transport boats sank and there wasn't enough room for them. So they'd been left on this island. So that's like their epitaph. Like it's this, the, and most contemporary seamen, including the captain, had no idea why they were called that. They were just like, oh, that's Smith, that's Hobbs. That's what it says on the map. But nobody knew that that was where these men had been abandoned. Um, and then we make it to Wager Island. Um, and it is as desolate and wind barren and as cold as, as the others described. I now appreciated that they probably all had hypothermia, which was a term they wouldn't have used back then. They would just say we were, I was, we were freezing. I now understood that. And, and I could find virtually no food. Um, and I began to understand why this British officer described it as this place where the soul of man dies in him. I was like, okay, I get it now. I get, you know, I get how challenging uh, this environment. But then perhaps the most remarkable thing is that one part of the island, somebody in our group says, come over here, take a look. And there was a little icy stream. And in it were these wooden timbers about five yards long, bound together by these wooden pegs. They are timber from an 18th century ship, which is believed to be His Majesty's ship, the Wager. We knew what they were because they'd been discovered by a scientific expedition several years earlier. And that is all that remains. So after all that furious struggle we just talked about, you know, all those warring narratives, um, there's nothing else. And the only sound I could hear was the eternal hush of the sea. So I was just very struck by it. I couldn't have written the story had I not gone. What an amazing ending. That was great. Um, that's perfect to, to see the timber left over from the ship. And, you know, to be there at a current time and think about the lack of resources because this place is so hard to access. There'd be no reason to be there. There was no wildlife essentially that was like bound to the area. Uh, even the natives that at some point in the book come and visit them, they're like, you know, okay, good enough. We'll see you guys never. <laughs> like, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, not, <laughs> we're not coming back to visit you because we don't even hang out here, but good luck with everything. Um, incredible work. So much fun and a fun, easy read too. Like I'm not giving the hard sell to the audience on it, but it's just, you know, sometimes in history, you'll look at the old font and you go, okay, I got about eight months to go on this one. Uh, this was, 
this was a lot of fun moves, a lot of surprises, and of course, an end that we didn't even share with you that is worth checking out. So thanks for all the work on this, David. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And I didn't even get to ask you about the Knicks. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck against Cleveland. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) I hope it ends better than it did for the wager. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. You want details? Fine. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. I want to thank Primus and Tool, uh, who <laughs> played a joint show last night in L.A., and your boy made it out on a Monday night uh, and then came back and watched a Golden State game. So there was, a, there was a fork in the road at a point last night where I was like, this could be an epic night. And it was. And I was like, you got, you got stuff to do, bro. You got stuff to do. So really, he's just chomping at the bit here. Well, one, what's Primus like live? And two, you're also, you're kind of like a tool like roadie super fan now <laughs> this is pretty intense how many times have you seen them this wasn't the full version of tool it was uh danny the drummer and justin the bass player so the guitarist and, and there was no chance like you know again the the joke the first time i saw tool and i have a friend who's very close friends with danny so i've had access to be able to go and hang out and the first time we get like stuck in traffic so he was like do you want to just go back and hang out with those guys for two hours and i was like wait you don't he's like yeah of course i do it's like i'm fucking with you so we all hang out we're having a great time and then i was like is maynard coming by and it was like mike drop (laughs) the lead singer (laughs) we're like no dude (laughs) he's not coming by to like hang out with you especially and it was like, okay, okay. So yeah, it was half a tool and Primus uh, live was, was even better than I thought it would be. And we got hooked up. I mean, we got totally hooked up where um, we get to see it from this vantage point. It was, it was incredible. But yeah, it was a Monday for the old guy and you were like, what do we do? And then, you know, hanging out after and they're like, well, there's a thing after. And I was like, yeah, the thing after is me trying to figure out a fucking Sacramento Kings open. So there you go. There you go. Because uh, the other thing, too, is like when you do this job, you can't just hide in a cubicle, you know? Yeah. That was the thing I always try to explain to my friends. I was like, you know, ESPN, you're having a bad day. It's like, okay, cool. 
talk about fucking Roethlisberger's legacy for three hours today. Yeah, you're not just like chucking Pedialyte. <laughs> yeah, you can't just hide in the back and send everything to voicemail, you know? So uh, I was actually trying to figure it out. I was trying to count last night. I was like, how many shows have you ever been hung over in your career? And I, I came up with a count. I think I have the definitive list. I think it's six. Ever. Wait, are you hung over right now? No, not even, not even okay. close. Just say you yeah. don't look it. So, good for oh, you. thanks, thanks, Steve. Uh, okay, we have a million follow-ups on the paternity thing. <laughs> <laughs> like a million. Um, we might just have to do that when it's a slower day. So let's let's not do it now. All right. Okay. Here we go. Life advice. Life advice. Rr at gmail Here we go. Uh, am I turning into the old guy from Banshees of Inisherin? 36 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. People were a little upset that I didn't give enough of a delay on the spoiler alert for Succession last oh week. Oh, my God. We did, like, two different spoiler the alerts. The fucking like, LA Times. <laughs> I mean, come, come on. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. So you guys are saying we handled it the right way. Yes. I we historically do. don't give a shit about any of this. Like it's the internet. Wow. Stay off it. If you don't if you can't if you can't handle it, stay off it. I'm not like it is the internet. This isn't a this isn't like a book club or something where we all have to wait till we meet to talk about it. So whatever, man. So don't listen to the show. Is that what you're telling people? Uh I thought no, you, Shiv dying this week was way more crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you okay. you 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 gave a pretty very clear instruction of what we were doing if you didn't follow the instructions i mean i guess i'll have to go back and listen but i, I thought we handled that just fine and then there was like a, a pause if i heard succession and i didn't see the episode i'm just instantly going to stop whatever i'm listening to i don't you have quick it. hands though. yeah you have, so you have, i think i could have done a better down. job i i haven't listened to it i think i actually could have done a better job you know what i could have done i could have done the the thing where i'll I'll ask a question where I'm kind of putting the guest on the spot a little bit and knowing that they may not have the right answer, but I'll ask it. And then I kind of ramble for 30 seconds where I'm resetting the question. So now I've given them time to think of an answer, which sometimes works and plenty of times it doesn't work. I probably should have said, hey, I'm going to do a little spoiler alert here and then talked not about the spoiler. I think I could have done a better job. So next time. I think you did just fine. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. 36, 5, 9, 2, 10. Don't max out, but 13 reps is my current combine number on the bench. That's great, man. It's really good. Long time buddy. Let's call him Frank, who I can no longer tolerate. It's such a great line in that movie. He's just like, I don't like you. I don't like you anymore. Uh, we've been friends for over 20 years, and he's part of my core group of guys. The problem is that all the other core friends are married and have kids. And at this point, uh, so they're rarely available to hang out. Me and Frank are single and don't have children. We both pretty much lay low on the weekends. We like to get after it on, the, or excuse me, lay low on the weeknights. That guy's not going to Primus on a Monday um, and get after it on the weekends. He hasn't done anything in particular lately to piss me off. Then a couple of months ago, I finally got around to watching the Banshees of Anna Sharon. I enjoyed the movie and laughed out loud quite a few times, which is rare for me. It really is a good movie. I realized when watching that maybe it's okay to stop hanging out with a longtime friend if he isn't bringing much to the table. I get that maybe that's not the lesson I should have learned after watching the events of the movie unfold, but I digress. Yeah, I don't think you have to worry about the rest of the parts of the movie, worrying that that's going to happen to you. See, we didn't even tell you what happened. Frank's got some annoying ticks. He always likes to ask if I've seen a random movie. And if I say no, he always responds with, you've never seen fill in the blank. Sometimes now I just lie 
and say yes to avoid the inevitable response that I know is coming. He also constantly fact checks things I say in real time. For example, if I tell him I saw a crazy sports stat the other day and give him the star, he'll immediately put up, pull out Google to confirm what I tell him I just saw this two days ago. <laughs> uh, worst of all, Frank is super cheap. We split a birthday gift for one of our buddies years ago, and he never paid me for his share of 100 bucks. I bought him dinner and drinks a few months ago because he left his card at home. And then the following weekend, he smoked me up on a joint or two. A few days later, he texted me and asked me if I Venmoed him 10 bucks for the hookup. <laughs> and I said, if anything, you owe me money for the weekend prior. He responded, touche, and didn't Venmo me anything. <laughs> Get this guy. I like this guy. Yeah. I love touché. the touche. <laughs> and then disappears. Touche is a real conversation ender, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, he constantly comes to my house and brings a six pack, crushes it, and then clears out all the beer and alcohol I have. <laughs> we did have one friend that did that. Like there would be get togethers and he would bring two beers from self in his pockets. And at, then everybody knew they were like, which two beers do you think he's going to bring? And be like, well, the best part is he's going to keep one in his pocket while he drinks the other one and he'll drink it fast enough that, that and then it's on. And that's his version of bringing something to the table. <sighs> then it's a case race. <laughs> right. Then it's like, okay, whose beer am I now going to drink? What we want to do is have somebody just come in with a full-blown vest with all these pockets and try to fill like a 12-pack and then stand there and never put the beers in the fridge. Although that's sort of punishing yourself because depending on how fast you drink, one of those is going to be pretty warm. All right. So constantly comes to my house. Got that. Cleans out all the alcohol. I like to keep alcohol in the house when I have guests, but most of my friends bring over a 12-pack or a bottle and leave what they don't drink. Not the other way around every time. He asked to come over to my house multiple times over the past m couple months, and I keep making excuses as to why I'm not available. My question is, do I confront him over his constant cheapness and tell him to bring a 12-pack because I don't want to see a sixer in his hand again when he knows he's going to drink way more than that? Keep in mind, he is sensitive, so I don't know how uh, he'll react to a call-out. I generally like to avoid confrontations or do I just continue to be mostly unavailable to him? I don't want to completely cut him out of my life. Just hang out one-on-one -on -one less often because he, attend, he tends to annoy the shit out of me. Um, he also, by the way, shout out to Kyle and Poughkeepsie. Check out Tavern 23, the old Rennies. Yeah, Great about food it. and vibes. Kyle already knows. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to check it out when I go back for the wedding. Believe Captain, you me. Captain P. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you kind of like summarized it pretty well at the end here. Like, what do you want this to be? You know, in the movie in Banshees, it's pretty clear one guy's totally good, never seen the other guy again. A little tougher in a village in Ireland, you know, hundred years ago, uh, maybe longer. I forget which year. So, yeah, I think it is longer than that. But uh, I'll look it up as we talk. You should have your friend Google this for us. Um, it sounds like you still kind of want to be friends with them, but there's kind of like an awkward part of never like phasing somebody out the phase out. Eventually they know they're getting phased out unless they're oblivious. Although I kind of respect the relentless guy who fights the phase out. He's just like, I'm not going to be phased out. Like I'm not going to be phased out. We had a buddy <laughs> like that in college. He's still mm -hmm. one of our all time friends. But in the beginning it was kind of like, what's this guy's deal? I don't know. I think there was one of our friends who was like super rich. who didn't like him just because he wasn't rich. I was like, dude, that guy's from like a poor family. Uh, and again, you know, fucking right down the middle over here. But he just relentlessly kept, he avoided all phase outs, wouldn't, wouldn't pay attention to him. So I don't know if that's going to be part of the problem here too, because it, it sounds like he probably annoys the shit out of way more people than just you. So yes, it's super easy to be like, hey, let's just talk about this thing. 
But I think in a a maybe few drinks in, subtle, like, hey, there's no beer left. Or do this. When he brings a six-pack over, have him drink and then have nothing in the house. Hide it all, right? And then he'll be like, oh, there's nothing else here. And then you just kind of like let him have it in a really funny way where you could be like, oh, wait, did I not get your order? Did you text me an order ahead of time of what you wanted to drink after you were going to drink all the stuff that you brought on your own here? Like, I think there's a way where it feels like it's a little bit more playful, but you're making a very direct point and you're planning this out. Maybe you do it a group. Maybe you do it in some other front of some other people. So you don't feel like it's this one on one Dr. Phil shit where you're like, hey, man, you know, just want to talk about kind of you and your general vibe here and how people are feeling about it. I think it's one direct, harsh, harsh uh, verbal slash which seems playful, but it isn't. Hopefully it stings him a bit and perhaps he'll alter course here. You know, cheap guys don't usually decide to not be cheap all of a sudden. Some people are cheap because they have no money and then they stop being cheap because then they have money. And then there's people that are just always cheap. It doesn't matter what the cash flow situation is. But I would think one direct verbal slice here, just put it on his radar. And, and develop from there. I think it needs to be on his radar because right now he's probably operating his vessel without any radar whatsoever. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle of a phase out right now. And um, I'm never I'm never going to be like, this you is get phased out. No, I'm phasing some. I'm never. in the middle of it. No way. Unfazable. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah he's just, you know, guy went sober and proud of him. Happy for him. He's zero fun now. He always wants me to come over to his house. No, no, I'm not saying I'm not saying like, oh, you don't drink, you're no fun. Even though it's kind of that is a little <laughs> bit what I'm saying. This guy stopped he's drinking, like, so fuck him. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, he was he used to be way fun because he was a, a terrible drunk. But but I mean, like now, like I, I stay in contact with him because, you know, and you really I realized that his life. Like his friends were just centered around drinking, just centered around the bar, and then he had to stop. and And everyone kind of disappeared. And I'm, I'm, I've been sort of, you know, I've been texting with him back and forth. And I've all he wants to do is wants me to go over to his shitty apartment and like watch him mess around on Pro Tools for like music that's not really going to go anywhere. And I just, I, I can't do that anymore. He does. He can't be in the bar at all. He can't like he. There's really nowhere else to go. He doesn't want to like. I mean, I wouldn't be like in the canyon walking around with him, but it's like there's nothing to do. All he wants is come over and check out the new tunes, dude. So I've just been uh, I've been in the middle of that phase out and I'm never going to say, hey, dude, you suck since you stopped drinking and I don't want to listen to your shitty music. But I do come up with excuses. I do. Sometimes the text doesn't get answered and then I'll answer the next one and then I'll maybe even reply to the one I didn't answer two weeks ago. I think I think there's a way to just do this, you know, without without having to be like, hey, man, I don't. I don't like your your relentless Googling. I don't care about your movies and stop drinking my beer. You could just be like, just not around. And this isn't this isn't Banshees because, you know, you're not going to see this guy everywhere you go. And he's not popping up, tapping on your window, right? To see what the fuck's going on. So I think you could you could probably just continue on this path and just maybe don't even answer a text every once in a while. Yeah, keep it going. Like, it's not like he's excommunicated, but if you just, he's already sort of getting the idea. So I think... I think you could just continue move to phase three of the phase out or whatever, you know. Uh, I haven't he seen Banshees, per- right? But he doesn't want to permanently phase him out, though. Like he's still so. There's some delicacy here where he, you can't. This can't be a friendship ender. That's the point. That's what makes it a little tougher. Sorry, I jumped you, Saru. No, no, I haven't seen Banshees, but I think I, so. I, I don't. I don't. I can't speak to that portion of it. But I think Kyle brings up a good point because in your life you have kind of like the people that text you and you they get an immediate text back. You know, your close family, your close friends. 
And then you have the group that like, you know, you'll give it an hour, you'll give it a day. Maybe you, you respond to one out of every two or three. And that's kind of an easy way to face. That's, that's sort of an easy way to put someone subtly, I think, in their place of where they are in the pecking order of friendship. And you could sort of scale that and do it slowly. Like you just start not answering to every text and then, you know, every other text, whatever. And then you start not hanging out as often. Like it it just kind of slowly goes in that direction. Um, So I think that's kind of the best way to do it. The other thing you could do is why don't you instead of, you know, instead of just like being a dick about hit the beer situation, can you just start giving him orders? Be like, hey, man, we're short of beer. Could you pick up like a like a 30 on the way over and and put the onus on him to actually start buying some of this stuff? And then like when that. he shows up, you have like a secondary fridge where you have like backup supply that he doesn't know about. But your main fridge, like it looks empty. And if he doesn't bring it over, then it's like, oh, shit, like you ruined the party. You, didn't, you were supposed to be the beer guy. So maybe that's kind of like a subtle way to like get him to stop being so cheap about the beer thing, because he's going to one not be able to drink your beer and he's going to kind of be the downer that guy that didn't actually bring the beer when it was his task so again i don't have the the, the banshees background of this thing but i think there are like subtle ways that you can kind of like give you him haven't seen banshees, still dude out. i have it because i heard it sucked but you guys said it was good so i don't really i don't know who told you it sucked I, everyone just said it was like really boring and i know i'm a big feral guy i'll watch it i just haven't had the time recently obviously uh, but I will wash it. But everyone kind of said it was boring, no? Or am I getting? I'm, I'm, am I getting that Benedict Cumberbatch movie, the the dog one, mixed up? You're Maybe probably thinking of that movies one. Mixed up. I Dude, think you're definitely thinking of that one. Cumbersnatch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I know. This is not a. There are no Cumberbitches on this podcast. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I, I heard people say it was kind of a drag. Like I know. Well, Benedict I would say it. it's uplifting. Yes, I, w- I would agree <laughs> with that. By the way, it takes place exactly 100 years ago in 1923. Um, but that that village there no wi-fi there so you know there you go okay um let's do another one here right we covered it all right my roommate is jimmy g levels of handsome but doesn't know it how can i empower him to break out of his shell and get some action whoa this guy really wants this other dude to hook up i guess 511 170 lift three times a week pretty grotesque sky hook uh (laughs) that's funny Jalen Williams. Um, like Saruti, I heavily dabble in the under desk treadmill. Yeah, like, I've been using it. It's awesome. <laughs> I sound like such a loser. That's fine. Uh, I'm reaching out because I'm at my wits end trying to empower my roommate to get some action. For context, both recent graduates living in a two bedroom apartment in the young section of a major city. We both lucked out, got very good starting gigs. I'm doing software engineering for a tech company and my boys working in the marketing department of a pro sports franchise let's just make it even more vague um on paper this dude is the perfect catch six two in a city full of short kings maybe we need to figure out which city this is that would be a great if like a city we're losing yeah like if there was some sort of like yeah we're losing tax dollars be like you know our average height is like two inches below every other major city let's just start marketing (laughs) ourselves that way like have you ever wanted to be tall when you go out you know welcome to fort worth uh (laughs) Fort Worth feels tall, though. So, you know, I just was trying to come up with a city. Uh, all right. So he's a chiseled 225 face of a Greek god. Also, uh, he works for a pro sports team. All right. He is the tier of handsome that in college, when me and the other guys would pick up girls at parties at bars, they'd always mention how person X was their top pick and wish we could talk to them. Always? Or wish he would talk to them. Always? I would always mention that. Jesus. Boy, that's, that's an aggressive. Depressing. That's an aggressive U-turn. <laughs> You're depressing. hitting on somebody and she's like, I wish... Fucking Dave would take me home. He won't even look at me. What's what's yeah. his deal? <laughs> I'll go home with you, but Jesus. 
Do you guys live together? <laughs> Some girls went as far as even shooting their shot at him in classes or climbing onto his lap if he was sitting on a couch at parties. The problem was that these more outgoing girls were not of any desire by my roommate. Uh, in my personal experience, hot girls, coincidentally, my type are the type my friend likes, <laughs> want to be approached, and my friend is very, very shy. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I always kind of think it's funny, like when excessively hot girls are like, no one will ever talk to me. They're like, yeah, because you're going to say no to all of them. That's why. <laughs> I also love that he was like, hot girls, my type. Oh, you're, in, you're into hot girls. Nice. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> no, I read that wrong. He said, coincidentally, the type my friend likes. Right. But oh, okay. again, yeah, you weren't totally off. I read it wrong, which would have made the email a lot funnier. But yeah, it's not like, this is my buddy who likes really unattractive people. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a good time. Tell him to come. By. Oh, you quit Big drinking? personality guy. Right. As me and all of our other college friends uh, have been on hookups and gotten girlfriends over the years, my friend has made remarks about how depressing it was that he was still a virgin. Oh, no, Saruti, don't call this guy out. Or that he would be single forever. I've had countless attempts the past five years at hyping him up or wing manning him, but he always gets cold feet in the end. Uh, it's been even worse post-graduation as my friend doesn't even want to go to bars or parties anymore. I tell him that every girl he meets just wants to jump him or that if he downloaded a dating app, he'd get a bajillion swipes, but he scoffs at me. Your first guess might be that he's just not that into girls. I was wondering if we would get there, uh, which I, too, have posited. But he's talked in enough detail about his types of girls he sees from afar that I really that I don't get that vibe. OK. Maybe. All right. Uh, I think guy, a big sexual. Right. I, you know, <laughs> right. I don't feel super comfortable with like email. Probably like, well, wait, dude. <laughs> you know, like I don't fuck. I think a big part of it. Uh, may have been that growing up, going to all boys private school and not really developing any comfort game with talking to women. I really care for his well-being and he's generally a great, great dude. We're still very young with a whole life ahead of us. And I try to reiterate that he doesn't have to rush to do anything before he's ready. I can just see this eating away at him and want to motivate him to take the leap. I sometimes get angry because I know that if I look like Bradley Cooper, this guy's really pushing the positives of working for a pro sports team. But yeah, whatever. Uh, any, I'd be shooting my shot at the Duchess of Cambridge, Doja Cat, or a goddamn <laughs> Insta butt model. There's a Brazilian butt lift girl at the gym now, and guys are just not keeping their cool. To, yeah, guys don't know what to do. Guys are freaking out. Are people talking to her? Or are they just like awkward? nobody's talked to her? Yeah. Nobody's talked to her. I'm not yeah. talking to her, but <laughs> nobody. Guys are looking at each other. I remember I told the other story about how the guy just went for it. Even that guy doesn't know what to do. That guy talks to everybody. All right. So love the podcast. Uh, look, there's a couple different ways of looking at this. The simplest one is maybe you shouldn't care so much about whether or not your roommate hooks up. Granted, I know, you know, you're looking at him and his attractiveness. It's like you could have this whole world in front of you and you're not doing anything about it. But we had a roommate who never who didn't hook up. He just didn't. He, he was his standards were like absurd. We're like, where do you think you are, man? We're in Vermont at a school. You know, there's some some really attractive people walking around. But like your your entry level, like your your safety, you're like going safety school, the Sorbonne. Like this isn't what. And then you just kind of realize that. I, again, not to be like weird about it, but for some people, the idea, the act of like being intimate with somebody else is so sacred, is something that they're 
protective of, that they can't imagine being that way with somebody that they're not fully attracted to. And, you know, look, it can be sort of complicated. You're like, dude, relax a little bit, loosen up the standards a little. But we'd get in an argument with one of the roommates about it all the time. And he'd be like, man, you know, it's been six months or whatever. And we're like, that's your fucking fault, dude. Like, you know, mix it up every now and then. Make out with somebody at last call. Bring some kids back. You know, people like staying up late. Do what the rest of us are doing. And he wouldn't do it. And he just wouldn't do it. And eventually, like, everybody stopped caring. Granted, he didn't look like this dude, apparently. But that might be the first part, is that you might have more of an issue with it than he does. I'm going to keep it short. I don't really have any. I I just got a plan. I'm not going to do advice. I just have a plan. I know you say he doesn't. Um, he doesn't like to go to bars, but you, you said he seems to be like, oh, this great guy. So he's probably a nice guy. You got to get him to the bar. That's my, that's my, that's, that's my advice for a lot of things. This time it actually lines up perfectly. You got to get him to the bar. You got to say something's going on at work or you just need a buddy to hang out with and you need to get him to a bar, pick the right night of the week. And you find two chairs at the bar, you get the drink and then be like, yo, I'm going to the bathroom. Like just find the right spot around the girls who, you know, are going to like be on him. And, and you just be like, watch my seat. I'll be right back. going to the bathroom and just stay away for like, I don't know, seven, eight minutes. See if anything happens. And you can do this all the time. I think you could, well, you can't, you can't like go to the bathroom every, every 10 minutes, but like, there's a way to set this dude up when, you know, girls are at the bar feeling a little loose as far as like would they come up to a dude or wait for a dude to come up to them? And it sounds like he's not going to do that. So I think you just, you just get him, get him in position and then just clear out and then come back and see if anything happened. <laughs> Kyle's coaching him up. It's just a plan. I don't, it sounds don't, like just go out to a bar, but he said, and then leave here, him alone. I, that was, that, I mean, listen, there's nothing wrong with that advice. And I've used that advice many times over and it's been completely <laughs> correct, but Fair. I'm just saying, but I think he's saying like, he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to do that. You got to make it seem like he's doing something for you, right? Because he, he wants you to get off his back. He doesn't want to want you to bother him about not hooking up or not doing this. He doesn't want to go out to the bars because he knows you're trying to cut him up. You just got to make it seem like the really the genius part of this plan. And it is the genius part is you got to make it seem like he's doing you a favor by going to the bar. You got to say you're going through something. I don't know. Somebody's sick. Stuff's hard at work. You're losing money well, or something. Right, I don't well, know. I, I think all of those things are 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 well said and I get it. I think my point would be these guys, I think are fresh out of college. So they're probably already going to bars. It sounds like they go to he bars. He says he doesn't do he, that anymore. He says he doesn't want to do it anymore. He's not interested in it. He's been trying to get him to do a bunch of different stuff. So that's why I think I, you got to, you just got to get him to the bar. I mean, the long, long and short of it is you just got to get him to the bar. That's where, that's where but, this happens. He's going to feel why? gross about doing the swiping thing. If, the, if you care, if you want this guy to, you know, you cash in on his looks while he's in his twenties, then yeah, that's what you got to do. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of, you know, like the NBA center who like his whole life, people are like, oh, dude, like, you know, he's seven feet. He's got some skills. He's like, oh, you're so talented. You're so talented. And he just like doesn't even like playing basketball. But he, like, yeah, by the way, that's a lot of situation. That's a lot of centers in the NBA exactly. right now. Like, exactly. If you talk to James into it. <laughs> no, there's there is a a well-established theory, philosophy. I don't even think it's a theory because it's it's presented by there's a lot of guys that are really tall that play in the NBA that fucking hate it, but their entire lives they were told. So Saruti, I love this analogy. Continue. Yeah, because and, and and you got a bunch of five ten guys being like, oh man, like I can't believe Andrew Bynum like doesn't want to put in the work. Like this incredible he's got all this, he was gift, you know, gifted everything, you know, all these talents and skills, blah, 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 blah. Just because this guy 
is hot and is a good looking dude doesn't mean he wants to be about that life. So I, I think what, why aren't we asking him like what he wants? He doesn't want this. He doesn't want it sounds like you want him like yes there's like a friendly thing of like hey you're a good looking dude like you should be going out more and hooking up more that's one thing but do you also secretly like maybe want him to be your wingman so you can make it he wants so to life could be easier off. on yourself like i just kind of <laughs> feel like we should be asking what your friend wants like I, I i feel like it's a little bit selfish on your part to just assume that just because he's hot that he should just be hooking up with all these girls like he just doesn't want to do that maybe he wants to hang out in his basement and play video games maybe he doesn't like he doesn't have the same lifestyle that you do so while i think it's a noble thing and i think you're being nice i think it's a little bit selfish all on the table. I imagine a 30 for 30 on this guy. And he's like, you know, my whole life, people were just telling me to smash. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to play Super Smash Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, I just, I didn't want to smash as much as they wanted me to smash. And it was just really hard for me to adjust to. Uh, there's a, there's like one paragraph I can't, I can't get past. And, you know, this may just not be what he's interested in for a bunch of different reasons. But the fact that he keeps telling you how depressing it is that he's still a virgin and that he's going to be single forever. Now, let's, let's play this game. That like, one doesn't make sense. It, it could exist. It, you could have a friend that for whatever reason, his personality, whatever's going on in his head, right? All that shit we don't share with everybody. That it's like he has a real problem of of not figuring out like you know the, the physical part of this like it's this apprehension you know it's like i believe that would exist for somebody in this case it happens to be your roommate who apparently is a fucking smoke but I, I don't i don't know i don't really know what like i think you have to be really delicate here if he's this good looking actually has interest in girls is openly complaining about the direction of his life and the lack of romantic interest. Like, I, I don't, I don't think you can go like hard at him here, man. I, I think you, like you add all that up. If it's all, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to sit here and be speculated about a bunch of different things, but I think maybe it's kind of back to like what you both are saying here is that who's this email about, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's cool you care this much about your friend and your roommate. I do think that that's happening. Nobody's giving you a hard time for that. But, you know, if he's just not, if he's not wired that way, like it's going to be up to you to get over it more so than him. And if, you know, if he's 30 and goes, you know, I fucking wasted all those years, I could have done whatever. Or maybe he finds his path and he's totally happier. Like, you know, it's, it's really going to be way more up to him. Instead of you, like, we could go, oh, hey, plan out a double date or put him on an app or, you know, a girl that you're really tight with, be like, this is the dilemma. But then again, she's going to tell all of her friends, you'd be like, hey, the Jimmy G without game is coming tonight. So they're all going to be fucking weird about it. And he's going to figure it all out here too. Yeah. I, I think, I think you just need to be very conscious of like, what, what does he think about? What, what are his feelings where he's telling you openly that this is bumming him out? while then never doing anything about it, despite ample opportunity. And that could be something that just as a friend, especially when you're younger and guys are kind of tough with each other, younger, like we're just kind of shitty because we don't really know how to talk to each other and we repress it all and all this different stuff. But I, I would just say, like, don't be really pushy about it because if this is, if this cocktail is all put together and this is kind of where he's at right now, his best friend, his buddy, if you're this close, you know, 
I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to be nicer about it as opposed to how I'd answer You're right. the question of my point. Something 20s. should be going on. There's got to be something going on, whether it's like melting down when he's like sealing the deal. Maybe he gets anxiety. Maybe he's a never nude like uh, Tobias. Mm. Um, never I don't nudes, know. yeah. It's yeah. Good, There's got to be good. something. There's got to be a reason. You're right. This doesn't add up. Maybe you should go to therapy. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Okay. That's life advice. Thanks to Kyle. Thanks to Steve. Life advice. uh, We already gave out the email at the top of it. Thanks to an awesome podcast today. Today was great. So please subscribe. Ryan Russell Podcast. Ryan Spotify. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.